Welcome back to the Darkest Hour Podcast. We are continuing our extremely detailed autopsy of John Carpenter's 1978 classic, Halloween. I'm John Evans, and I'm joined by um, my awesome co-hosts, like every show, and uh, those two gentlemen would be named Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchak. How the hell are you guys? Uh, I'm back in Los Angeles and uh, re- uh, recovering from a bug. That uh, caught us to me while I was running around the snow in Ohio, but uh, yeah, uh, but okay, I'm ready to talk about some horror movies. They have a healing effect on the soul, on the dark, twisted they, soul. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and you, Vic? How are you, man? I'm doing well. Uh, I uh, for anyone hoping for one of those great surprise appearances by one of my children, <laughs> uh, that will not be happening as they are in uh, Texas visiting their grandparents with my wife, which had the the pleasant side effect of right before we started here, uh, I took a little time for reasons that will become apparent I think later on uh, to just to rewatch kind of the last uh, 15 20 minutes of the movie and when it was over in the silence of my empty fucking house. I went around and locked all the doors. I had to go in the garage to get a beer, and I was scared shitless. I went and locked all the doors before I came in and sat down. I closed the blinds, so uh, uh, this movie still has some power, even now as a an otherwise rational adult. Did you uh, lock, uh, accidentally lock yourself in the garage while you are getting that beer? Did you have to halfway climb out the window and get your foot stuck in a, uh, a weird wire thing? I did not, but I am wearing some very attractive lace panties. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll try not to uh, terrify Vic, uh, who's alone in an empty house right now. But uh, we do have a very, I would say, it's a chilling film to discuss tonight. How do you think films like Black Christmas or When a Stranger Calls or all of that sort of phone horror that was actually early 70s type stuff, do you think that, you know, for this period of time, maybe it was something of a tradition that you need to have some kind of phone business in a, in a, in a slasher movie. Um, what, what do you make of that? Well, I think, I mean, I was struck watching again, just the last 20 minutes when Jamie Lee Curtis, when Lori goes to pick up the phone after she's found all the bodies and she's going to call the police and the phone line is cut. And what a terrifying idea that was back when we all had landlines that the phone really was this, lifeline it was this method of communication that could save you and that terror of having that taken away it was integral to life especially among teenage girls but again it it presented this opportunity for isolation that we really don't have in the cell phone age i mean it's why you can find these supercuts of people in horror movies going damn no signal there's no other way to do it and it doesn't not, not one iteration of that has the terror that picking up a landline and finding no dial tone did. Well, you get the feeling that these girls probably talk several times a day. I mean, they certainly talk several times in in the day that we're privy to. And it actually kind of reminds me while you were talking there of, uh, and that kind of terror of being disconnected in um, night of the living dead of all movies. Like they, they get a little mileage out of the fact that she's uh, the girl runs into the house and is 
frantically trying to use the phone, and uh, I believe the zombie outside, the cemetery zombie, uh, happens to stumble through the phone line and tear it down, and that's what uh, disconnects her. Whether or not it really would have helped her much in this situation, we'll never know, but like even that film kind of taps into this fear of um, you know that, that phone line, that lifeline, as you said, being severed. Last time we were kind of circling the idea that Carpenter and Deborah Hill might have been almost playfully toying with that assumption that this was going to be like another early you know 70s horror film in which you know it's the babysitter she's being haunted by weird phone calls and uh it's never actually our killer uh except inadvertently when he's, when he's <laughs> strangling Lindsay to death and he happens to be you know on the other end of the phone but he's not he's not actually saying anything you know so it's like it's always like one of her friends or like some goofy situation like that yeah but the phone exactly. but, but the yeah, but the phone is constantly ringing and making her nervous, though. E- even though they never play that card of the killer calling our protagonist on the phone and being weird like in Black Christmas, they don't neglect the value of a, a loud phone ring in the midst of an otherwise silent scene uh, to kind of provide a, an organic, I wouldn't say cheap, but you know, it, it's kind of a low-calorie jump scare. Precisely. Yeah. And that's that's happening in this scene where we're picking up the the thread that there is some tension generated by the phone ringing, uh, even though Michael never never calls anyone. And yeah, there I I like the allusion to or the comparison to a, uh, you know, a jump scare or a cat jumping out of the closet. It's another way to create tension, even if. You know, it's not. It's it's essentially a red herring. It's also another hallmark difference between that era and the cell phone era, because I, I mean, at that time when the phone rang, it was this loud, horrible, like fire alarm, industrial noise. You know, so I mean, of course, when it goes off, you know, I, I, you you jump at it a little bit. You know, you don't get the same thing if like uh, you know some pop song starts playing out of your pocket you know it's like, <laughs> it depends on the pop song mike let's uh, let's give it a little there there is a reverse in that in the cell phone era the way horror movies use your cell phone is to reveal your location while the killer is looking for you mm-hmm. if you're hiding in a, a locker room or something and uh oh no shit my phone is going off now they know where i'm at da 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 well, my um, alarm on my phone is that uh, – I don't know how to say this, actually. Pharaoh Monk? I don't know. But it's Simon Says is the song, and it goes, get the fuck up. Simon Says, get the fuck up. And it, just, <laughs> it actually is kind of jarring, and, and that's the idea for me. I, I want it to wake mm-hmm. me up, but um, it would be kind of creepy in a horror film. You could you could definitely have um, you know your choice, your selection of – of song or ringtone uh, be eerie. But yeah, in the old days, there was something just jarring about that shrill ring of the, of the phone. And they, they do get mileage out of it. It also demands that you do something about it. On the most recent rewatch that I had, one of the things that actually bumped me a little bit from the movie is when uh, Paul calls the first time while Annie is out goofing around with her clothes and it, the phone rings and the little girl doesn't instantly pick it up. I was like, what? Who doesn't do that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> what human being doesn't instantly pick up a ringing phone? Uh, apparently, yeah. Kim Richards. So I still find it amusing that she, you know, she answers the phone, and it's Paul. And she says, hang on, I'll get her. And then she just hangs the phone up again. Yeah. <laughs> yes, she, ab- she very clearly just hangs it up. It's Kyle Richards, yeah. not Kim Richards. Mm-hmm. But yeah. 
So also this, the other trope that the film goes back to over and over is the mistaken identity with who Michael is or who the guy in the station wagon is. Like everyone has a theory. We've had, uh, there was a guy, I think Levant or something we talked about last time, but this Linda who's saying it's Steve Todd who's following them because he has the station wagon like that, or he wants to date Lori. We get the line from Annie on the phone right after Linda and um, Lori have noticed this or discussed this. And they tell her that the guy is following uh, them or Lori. And, and Annie says, go up to him and tell him to buzz off. Or if he's cute, ask him out. <laughs> <laughs> Remember uh, when a little bit later, Lori, she sees Michael and she's kind of lur- and he's lurking around in the backyard. And Annie picks her up and Annie uh, floats the idea that it's just her neighbor. And even though the neighbor is like 78, she's like, well, you know, I don't know. Yeah, that's, 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 it's like, that's right. <laughs> there it is again. They hit it again with this mistaken identity thing and, and the sort yeah. of like, he only wants to date you. And is that so bad? That is probably my favorite. And in a lot of ways, the most masterful aspect of the movie is it makes this extremely safe, very small town suburban scenario as, as creepy as I've ever seen it. Yeah. I and mean, it's really, really tight in that regard but at the same time like Lori sees this masked weirdo hanging around staring at her again and again and again in different places and she just kind of buys when people keep telling her oh it's this guy it's that guy you're just seeing things you're just making stuff up and to the extent that she actually convinces herself because after she sees Michael in the backyard she closes the window and she lies down she's like oh relax it's like they're (laughs) gaslighting her or something Exactly. It's like, no, you actually are seeing that guy. Yes, it actually is really weird. So yes, yeah, she she doesn't have a lot of that. she doesn't have a lot of faith in her own perception, which I guess you yeah. know is sort of a teenage person thing. But it, it also is yeah. kind of un- regrettably kind of a, a a female character cliche where like they you know if it was a guy we you know quote unquote we wouldn't be so quick to believe that she just you know is. It's possible she's just seeing things because that's what women do. You know, there's definitely kind of a retrograde kind of trope in movies where women's perceptions are much more uh, prone to just, you know, whatever mental slash emotional instability that they are suffering at any given time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I I think that's tied to the fact that women certainly have been perceived and I, and I'm not even sure this is just a perception, but that women are more vulnerable, right? That women do look out for creepy guys staring at them all the time because you never know what that guy is going to try and do in a way that men don't spend their lives looking to see if there's a creepy woman, uh, you know, who might try and stab them or, or do something terrible to them. But that's Uh, a really good point. But at the same time, wouldn't that suggest that they would be more, quick to be alert and on guard and, and take appropriate defensive action um, instead of, oh, I'm probably just imagining these threats around me. <laughs> well, I, I mean, maybe, but also is it something that you perceive everywhere? And also, I mean, it, look, a lot of it has to do with the time period, right? Like in a Scream movie, I don't think you would have that discussion, you know, oh, it's just a figment of your imagination or whatever. I think in a lot of ways it is because this movie harkens to not only a more innocent time, but also the innocent uh, location that, you know, I mean, outside of the one thing, you know, this kind of thing just doesn't happen in Haddonfield. So I, and if you do see something that kind of puts your radar up, 
you actively push that that supposition down because of course it's not dangerous. Of course you're being ridiculous. It's Haddonfield. Come on. Yes. Yes. Well, that that definitely. I I absolutely agree that this is a a bubble that these girls are living in, and in general, you know, yeah, this is this is a bucolic, idyllic kind of place to grow up. And it's, it's so beyond the ken that something like this could happen that people just yeah. aren't ready for it. Yeah. And, and her best friend's dad is the chief of police. And, you know, he's got like two other guys on the force. Although it is interesting when uh, Loomis shows up and he hangs out with the grave digger. You guys remember that scene? Oh yeah. I'm Where- about to get there. Yeah. A moment ago, I was kind of circling the idea that this kind of thing never happens in a place like Haddonfield. But the the gravedigger starts relaying the story about this dude who, like, out of nowhere just kind of kisses his wife and kids goodbye and goes and gets a hacksaw and comes back in. And he's about to finish out the tale when he gets interrupted because they get to Julie Myers' gravesite. But it's like, I, I mean, every once in a while, weird shit does happen around here. <laughs> you know? The myth of the Myers house sort of fits in with that bucolic atmosphere, right? Like every town has that one story, that one place, the one sort of weird thing uh, that, that happens. And so it sort of fits in with that because it's not really dangerous. You know, it's just a story people tell. It's not real. I mean, that's why that Lori is so cavalier about dropping off the key. I, I, it's real, but it happened so long ago that it's passed into you yeah. know, urban legend for the yeah. You because know, you know, in a later scene, you know, uh, a bunch of little kids are daring each other to go inside because it's mm-hmm. like this kind of spooky thing that you do on Halloween. You know, not, not knowing that there's a dead animal inside because the serial killer murdered it with his teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he got hungry. <laughs> yeah. Did you think that uh, later Michael uh, eats any uh, part of Luther, the German shepherd, or does he just strangle him? Hmm. I don't know that. I think he, he probably had enough dog for the day. Um, yeah. Okay. You know, like, uh, I was, he's, I was wondering that while I watch him kill Luther, I'm like, does he get, get a couple of bites in there? Does he just have a taste for dog meat? He, just, he, just he like can't it? resist fresh dog, you know? So. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> he, he does have time, I guess. Because um, sure. he, he, he spends a lot of time on that particular stock. Lori sings this song. And in the director's commentary that I listened to between recording our first podcast and this one, uh, I learned that Jamie Lee Curtis and Nancy Loomis were both tasked with coming up with their own songs to sing here and there in the film. <laughs> and so there are songs that they visibly kind of sing to themselves that you would think in you know most movies, certainly today, if, if a character were to do that, it would not be a made-up song, let alone a song that the actress came up with herself. But we have two fake songs that they sing uh, to themselves here and there the way that people do. Every time I watch this movie, I wonder where, oh, Paul, I, I keep wondering where, what that song is. I almost because Googled early, the lyrics to both songs. Yeah, <laughs> because, uh, you know, there, there's an earlier scene when they're just kind of driving around and she's listening to like kind of a, uh, almost like a doo-wop station. Oh, I know what um, that is. I know what that is. That actually yeah, I, is the John Carpenter and, is it Nick Castle? Yeah, the, uh, the guy who plays The Shape, they actually have a band and I forget, mm-hmm. like, I can, we'll definitely, you know, find it at some point during the show if we need it. But um, he had, like, a, 
a little band, and I, I, apparently the video, the videos that they have done are freaking hilarious and should be, you know, sought out. So we'll we'll get that information somewhere along the line here. But yeah, that's actually John Carpenter and The Shape doing a song. <laughs> In all likelihood, they they probably did you know made those choices because then they wouldn't have to spend the money to license yep. that music. It actually kind of struck me the one time in the movie that I recognized an outside song was in the very last scene in which they're driving Lori and Annie. Uh, we do hear uh, don't fear the reaper over the radio. Yeah. And, um, yeah, very briefly, but I mean, you still have to pay for that. So I, I they, they probably l- looked at their budget. They're like, all right, we have X number of dollars for music licensing, which means that we can either get like one really good song and Carpenter's like, Fuck it, I'm a musician. I will write the rest of the music that everyone <laughs> and anything that I don't write and perform myself, everyone else has to make up. <laughs> yeah, it was a very low budget production, of course. The Coupe de Villes are the are the band. Uh, right, right, yeah. Just out of curiosity, because I believe the budget on this film was three hundred thousand dollars, and uh, out purely out of curiosity, I ran it through a inflation calculator that translates to about one point one million. Which is uh, pretty okay. Yeah, there there are several things that really impressed me about this movie. Like, for instance, the fact that the Myers household they f- fully dress for not only period but also it's completely furnished. The rooms that we see, and then they go back to the exact same location and they redress it to make it this wrecked out haunted house. Oh no, this is the out. this is the fun thing about these commentaries. What happened was. They, the house was exactly how you see it for 95% of the movie. Then in uh-huh. one day, they whitewashed it. And Jamie Lee Curtis actually helped out. They whitewashed it and dressed it, redressed it for the shots um, that we get in the open. So Really? Yes. That's, ha- that's how okay. they did that. Uh, okay. That's cool. I, I, it's still impressive to redress a location in such a radical manner at, at that budget level, you know, so I, and they, they really run these dollars for everything that they had. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually learned a lot in this commentary. Um, it was really kind of amusing too, because we all know that John Carpenter is a crusty old dude and Jamie Lee Curtis certainly um, was, <laughs> I wouldn't say he, he got annoyed with her during this commentary, but they spend a lot of time debating who remembers the movie better. And Jamie Lee Curtis is obsessed throughout it with, like, the flaws, the production mistakes, which, of course, the director is not going to particularly appreciate. But she harps again and again and again on the fact that, like, there's candy glass in the kitchen door and the doorknobs are on opposite sides halves of the door you know on the inside and the outside on the wrong sides and carpenter says stuff like you keep obsessing about this stuff (laughs) (laughs) she definitely picks it apart a little bit but i also learned we talked a lot last show about the focus issue and i learned that the the camera they used a panaglide camera Basically, a Steadicam, just a you know a brand version of the of the Steadicam. It was the first time I believe that anyone had used that particular model, and it had focus limitations. And Mike, I want to say that Carpenter himself pointed out the loss of focus opening the drawer to go for the knife. So, regardless, his focus puller is a fucking hero because I was watching throughout. Not only that entire sequence, but I just, just there there are a variety of of situations in which. 
uh, we rack focus from from foreign background, or else uh, you know uh, the camera starts moving and uh, image remains in focus. I mean, whoever yeah. was as focus puller was you know a a class virtuoso because yeah. I especially on this level of budget, you don't have forty million takes. To, to get it right. Well, I, we should I, probably I'm, find I'm, out who that was. And I'm going to look it up right here, yeah. right now. I will right say while you're, while you're, now. while you're doing that, the Dean Cundy is the DP and he's awesome. I mean, he did the thing and oh, he, he's, he's done a lot of great stuff and he's the cinematographer himself, you know, certainly, uh, probably on a low budget film early in his career. Uh, he may have operated the camera, but he, he's sure. definitely real talented. And it's Deborah Hill's hand, by the way, reaching for the knife, not not the little boy actor in that scene, uh, in the, oh, yeah. the drawer. Jamie Lee Curtis did have a, a fun line in that scene where she, she commented that when the um, boyfriend goes up with the sister while Mike, young Michael is, you know, circling around the house, she calls um, their their time in the bedroom the quickest shtup in movie history, which I think we noted as well last time. <laughs> so... Loomis, knowing Michael's intentions, pursues him. Uh, we have this scene with the graveyard caretaker dude that Mike mentioned earlier. And for me, what I like about this scene is that it's more or less pointless, except for being a joke. It's all about how pointless and annoying this potential source of exposition, the caretaker dude, how pointless his story actually is. Because it doesn't pertain to anything. And it and right at the punchline, right as you said, Mike, right at the punchline, Loomis just cuts him off. <laughs> he has no interest yeah. in it. He has no interest. Yeah. And I, yeah. I thought yeah. that was I, awesome. The point of the scene is to uh, establish that Julie's uh, Judith. gravestone. Judith. Judy. Judith's gravestone has gone missing. Then Loomis muses out loud to himself, so Michael has come home, and it's like, well, I, I should hope so if you made the trip to fucking Haddonfield, dude. But it, <laughs> it, it does confirm his suspicion. And uh, looking at IMDb, we have uh, two potential guys. There's Raymond Stella, who is our uh, mm-hmm. Panaglide operator, mm-hmm. and then Krishna Rao, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, would be our second AC. Well, uh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis mentions uh, Stella a couple of times in the commentary, so I, I think, yeah, he definitely was a regular i mean he he was key part of this the the awesomeness of this these visuals i like that we burn this scene you know other than again as you as you said that the grave the gravestone is gone is the only purpose of it but it's an opportunity to potentially shoehorn in some expo with this guy and instead nothing the guy the caretaker guy gives us is is purposeful and it's it's a funny scene, but it's it's subtly funny. It's not like it's a gag scene or anything. So then Lori leaves her house and she passes a wall with evil sprayed on it in uh, graffiti, and I, I don't I don't think that was an accident. And she does a lot of watching trick or treaters, and this was one of the sort of perils of of commentaries, and that they can ruin things for you because they pointed out that there's only leaves like right around her. And, you know, all these shots of trick-or-treaters and stuff, not only are there no Halloween decorations on any house that we ever see, there's no leaves anywhere else because they shot this in, like, March. Hmm. But I like that she, in, in these beats of her watching the, the, um, the various trick-or-treaters and, and kids throughout the film, she has such a maternal energy. 
And I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how that fits into the whole thing, but it's very clear. One of the things that's interesting to me when, as we go through these, you know, the kind of early horror films, we're going to talk about Night of the Living Dead or Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th. You know, the, the acting is, is pretty bad by and large. I mean, these movies succeed largely on the skills of their directors and probably just some general good fortune. This is one of the few movies where I feel like they get a real performance out of Jamie Lee Curtis. And it's the reason that she is, of all the actors, one of the only ones who really goes on to have a career. I mean, due respect to, you know, Johnny Depp and Ryan Elm Street and that sort of thing. Um, and but PJ Souls. And PJ Souls. <laughs> I think that uh, Nancy Loomis is absolutely fantastic in this movie, though. She is. She, she is, she is really a spitfire, and uh, there, I, don't, I don't think that she has any clunky scenes. I mean, every once in a while we get, we'll get like a, a clunky line. You know, that there are scenes in in this that do kind of bespeak an, an earlier form of non-elevated horror. I guess you could say all all three of the girls. I, I think they're fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it, but it really makes a difference. I mean, you know, it's, it's, there's a reason that this is better regarded than uh, certainly Friday the 13th, and in some ways I think right. probably even, uh, uh, even A Nightmare on Elm Street. Bob kind of sucks, but, you know, otherwise it's just pretty well acted. She, she's definitely no Heather Langenkamp, but uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is pretty good. <laughs> she's definitely, she's. this is an introducing Jamie Lee Curtis. She'd only done some TV work, but, you know, obviously she's Janet Lee's daughter, there's a pedigree of talent and training here, and um, she, you know, has had a, a tremendous career both in and outside of the genre. So the chops are there, but um, the song that that you guys um, that uh, Mike m- mentioned that's on the car does not seem like something that teenagers were into even in 1978. You, you said that it was like a 50s doo-wop song. That you know, there, there's definitely some things that. Just feel, uh, I don't know. Yeah, like people looking back on their own childhood in writing this film rather than really trying to capture uh, what it was like uh, at the time. But that's fine. I mean, look, it's tough. And so then they get to this uh, hardware store, or they actually they just happen to drive by, and she Annie feels compelled, oh, shit, like somehow my dad is going to see us drive by, so we have to we have to stop even though we've been smoking uh, pot in the car and find out what's going on with this alarm going off at the hardware store. I do like that Lori is such a tough time with that J. Annie handles it like a trooper and uh, Lori is very <laughs> hesitant, you know, and man, she is hacking her lungs out that poor girl. And uh, of course, you know, when she's like, oh shit, it's my dad, hands it to Lori. <laughs> it's like, get rid of this. <laughs> There's something integral to, um, to Lori's character in that I find myself kind of surprised that she smokes pot at all, but yeah. that she does it like an amateur, you know, like that's, uh, uh, you know, she wants to be cool, but she's just not quite, she didn't quite have the lungs for it or whatever. Uh, yeah. She's like in the pantheon of bookish girls with no girlfriend, no boyfriend or girlfriend. It's the 21st century mm-hmm. that this character falls on that side of the spectrum where, she's definitely conflicted about her identity. You know, there's a lot of longing for boyfriends and for parties and for 
um, you know, to sin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You can tell it's why she's able to maintain these friendships with girls that you sort of initially are like, why are they even talking? Like, why are yeah. these three people friends? Yeah. And it's in stuff like her willingness to smoke a joint in the car on her way to babysit that you go, oh, okay, I sort of get why she has a role to play within this circle of friends that's very different from the other two. But yeah. she yeah. she fits. She spends the entire movie both getting teased by her friends and also mercilessly chastising herself for being a goody two-shoes, for being the good girl who... Yeah, sure. I'll watch the kids while you guys go have fun. Yeah, um, it's unrelenting, certainly. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a loving it's, criticism. Her attempts to be uh, a little more worldly are, are very fumbling. You know, she smokes a J and she coughs. She expresses uh, uh, an interest in Ben Tramer, and it's very, it's very kind of blushy. God, don't tell him. She's horrified at the idea that Annie tells him later to the extent that she willingly watches the other little girl if uh, uh, Annie will, in exchange, tell Ben that she was just kidding about Lori liking him. It's, it's, it's painful to watch. But it's also certain- subtle gradations, which is great and realistic. I mean, the script and the acting combine and the mm-hmm. casting to give us – you know, like on all of these both overt and subtler levels, the the very clear sense that absolutely these girls have been friends since fifth grade or second grade or whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah. And they all started out basically as complete peers. And a couple of them are getting wild and she's just kind of the stick in the mud. But like they're all still very much in the in the same general phylum of Good girls, but dot dot dot. Yeah, you know? <laughs> well, yeah but I, 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 I was watching this, and I was kind of making little mental check marks every time either Lori chastises herself, or else her friends kind of make fun of her. And it's very, very frequent, like all the way through the movie. And I, I started wondering why. Why is she Lori versus Annie or, or uh, what's her face? Uh, uh, Linda. Lindsay, yeah, Linda. And so, because she's not Carrie White. You know, she's exactly. not growing up in this repressive religious household or anything like that. Her dad seems pretty cool. I mean, she you know? doesn't and even I, seem I, truly naive or overly yeah. sheltered. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think she's just a little shy. Yeah, and that's exactly. it. You know, and uh, although I did notice uh, when in the one brief scene that we have in her bedroom, I, I did notice um, a preponderance of stuffed animals. Like there's a stuffed heart. There's a stuffed mm. puppy. Uh, you know, she's a little more, she's clean. She's having a harder time gear shifting out of childhood. Uh, and and yet there's the maternal energy. Like she's, yeah, she's very much more of a, uh, what we would assume with maturity, a nurturer, a, you know, responsible person. So like, it's an interesting, it's, it's not that she's just stuck in childhood. It's just that she's kind of wary sexually or you know wary of wildness or of acting out in a way yeah Yeah, i know it's a tennis racket in a room we uh we we never get a sense of her playing tennis ever again i I really wish that we had seen her playing tennis at h2o or maybe a tennis court but (laughs) she's clearly sort of the superior babysitter later in the movie not to get too far ahead but there's a scene when Michael's coming upstairs and she puts the children in a room and locks the door. And then she runs into the other room, clearly kind of trying to lure Michael away. And I just thought if, if that was Annie, 
Lindsay would be fucking dead. Like yeah. she would have thrown Lindsay at Michael and then run for it. So yeah, I mean that that maternal instinct sort of you know that that manifests in how good she is with Tommy in in all those scenes. She's a great blend of maturity and you know someone trying to hold on to her her innocence. You know, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. All right, so. The uh, Sheriff uh, Lee Brackett, I believe, or Sheriff Brackett anyway, it's based on Lee Brackett, the screenwriter, uh, co-writer of The Empire Strikes Back and The Big Sleep. Like, I think Carpenter was one of those directors who definitely, you know, started doing the name check stuff that got really out of hand in the 90s. So he tells them that um, Michael apparently stole, I couldn't quite make out, the subtitles said singular, but I thought he said plural, Halloween mask or masks. We know, obviously, which one he chose. But it kind of crossed my mind. What if he took a couple? Like, what if what if Mike was like, oh, well, give me, I'll have some options here. And then he just kind of stuck with that one. Like, what? how different would the movie have been if he was, like, wearing a gorilla mask or something? Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah he's got, yeah, roof and a couple of knives. Uh, yeah. The, the, that, that's one where he didn't... Limited choice. Uh, I, I would say that there's various arguments to be had that Loomis is kind of a complete failure uh, when it comes to finding Michael Myers. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I think this scene is the most direct example of that because uh, after the girls take off, he comes walking up and he has a conversation with the, the cop and after the cop leaves, in background, you see Michael come around the corner and even, like, very clearly see his face uh, with the mask on behind the wheel. He's, like, 20 feet away, like, directly behind Loomis, who's looking in the wrong direction in the foreground. Last time we were talking about this, we were referring it to, like, Bruce the Shark and Jaws. Uh, but that that shot actually made me laugh out loud this time around. I was just like, God damn you, Loomis. He's right fucking there. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, but it's, it's also, darkly funny. A lot of what Carpenter's doing is conditioning you to search the frame, you know? Yes. So that yeah. later on, I mean, it pays off in some really substantial ways that there are scary things happening behind you. And the monster, you know what I mean? The, the monster, again, in this suburban area that is supposed to feel safe you just don't realize it that you know the embodiment of evil is driving past you in a station wagon 20 feet away well we were talking about the budget earlier and this commentary illustrated the fact that so many of the great shots in this film were actually due to necessity not necessarily a creative choice the amount of long takes were often because like because of this, they had this Panaglide camera, and it could it was so mobile they could shoot a page and a half of the script in one take, and that just was tremendous from a efficiency and, and cost standpoint. So like there's many 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 long takes. Like for instance, uh, this came up while they were watching the amazing shot that we we talked about last time uh from the car inside the station wagon as michael is briefly uh driving alongside tommy as he's crossing in the uh yard of the of the school and it just goes on and on and as he's kind of following him through the neighborhood and it has just such a naturalistic dread to it and it was you know more or less admitted that 
if they had had more money and more time, they probably would have broken that up into more shots. But the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, they were dealing with a tight schedule and a low budget uh, and they had this camera, they just let it let it go and let it run. And that's why they have all these cool, long takes. And it's uh, it definitely works to the, the movie's benefit. And I think people, you know, subsequently, maybe even Carpenter himself, have said, oh, yeah, that's fucking awesome. I'm going to you know, make the stylistic choice to, to use that. But, it, you know, necessity is often the mother of invention. Much like Jaws, actually, which was something that I thought of in this in terms of, again, not, not necessarily the budget on Jaws, but that the fact that they didn't have the shark available made them do all these, uh, you know, POV shots and work with the barrels and blah, blah, blah. But that drastically increases the suspense. And you feel that very much here. I mean, the the time you spend in these kind of over-the-shoulder shots of Michael, you really just hold your breath through these long takes. Uh, and, and even there's a shot of them earlier on when the, when the three girls are walking where they sort of continue walking and it's, and he just holds the shot forever. And you're actually like, again, it creates this kind of tension because you're waiting for something to happen, even though it doesn't, and then it doesn't come. It, all of it, again, combined with that idea of searching the frame for the things that are in the background and stuff like it, it, you're, he's able to generate tension uh, without having to throw cats at you. Yes, right. Like the widescreen compositions that he's often used, and that deep focus um, definitely create that those effects. And he he knows how to take advantage. I I actually, as a as a brief side note, I just want to say I thought of you guys uh, literally yesterday. Um, I was watching. I've been I've been binging the first season of Community, and on the Halloween episode, they do kind of a zombie apocalypse thing that involves uh, Joel McHale and a bunch of the characters are in this kind of creepy basement. And this cat jumps out at them. They're like, Jesus Christ, it was a cat. And then the cat immediately jumps back across the frame and back across the frame. And they keep jumping every time the cat jumps. Uh, (laughs) uh, In terms of uh, training the audience to search the frame for our antagonist, uh, the last time we touched on something like that was in It Follows. Yeah. Yeah, We're uh, we're always looking for it. uh, Kind of in the same way that we're always looking for, you know, Michael in the background or, uh, you know, even the, the stolen station wagon. I, I, I think that uh, there, there's, there's something really brilliant about, uh, A, you establish the threat of your antagonist, and then B, let the audience know that the antagonist can show up in the background in a lurkful manner, and then... And, and from that point forward, you, you actually uh, teach the audience how to do your job for you in terms of generating the tension. Maybe, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. But in terms of dressing up the antagonist, making sure that we understand exactly what we're getting into, part of what so works so effectively – my goodness, John. Is that, the- <laughs> that was loud, wasn't it? Uh, I, was, I was reloading my drink. Yeah, sorry. That's a that's cool, refreshing pour. Leave it in. Leave it in. That's good. Um, one of the things that works so well about this movie is because you have the great Donald Pleasance playing Dr. Loomis, he spends all this time explaining to Sheriff Brackett exactly how evil Michael is. Without him, because I, I, I looked at the uh, clock, I don't think the first – Annie's death doesn't happen until about 40 minutes in. But by that time, like we are convinced by the dialogue and by his performance that Michael is the embodiment of evil. 
uh, without him having to do anything except stand there and stare at people periodically, uh, combined with the things that we keep hearing from Loomis. Good God. I mean, again, it's the dread that is pulled up from you before you, you have any physicalization of what Michael is actually capable of. Uh, it's it's breathtaking. It's terrifying. Well, we did see the the corpse of the um, the guy with the tow truck or whoever it was that uh, Michael killed to get the yeah. overalls. So we know he's mm-hmm. killed at least one person. We, and yeah, we see, we see a dead body, but that's not quite the same as what we're getting into. Certainly, that doesn't convey the things that Loomis talks about. Uh, you know, yeah. the the boy with no conscience, with no soul, with nothing human left in him. All those scenes and all that dialogue, I mean, again, it's you're, you're filling in this kind of void. I mean, if you think about it, again, if you go back to something like Jaws, where you hear Hooper talk about how, you know, shark, all the shark does is eat and swim and make little sharks. And that's it. Um, you know, that he is, he is filling in this void for this unseen evil thing that's swimming around. It's very much the same kind of idea. It creates this level of dread that you are able to fill in on, I mean, again, the, the beauty of the mask and everything else is that he is this kind of empty vessel that you are just able to put any terror into. And I think that Dr. Loomis gives you the terror, the, the idea of what's inside of that, that shape that really makes it so effective. Well, we get in the progression of time. The, one of the benefits is that people do learn from stories and sometimes you know, these happy accidents occur where the limitations of money and technology and time create things that work brilliantly. And then in subsequent films, like It Follows, where perhaps the technology could allow you to do whatever you wanted, you know, even at a lower budget, you still then can see the value in making these choices that that work. Because, you know, the the lessons have not been lost on you. And I think that you definitely see that in the long takes in It Follows. But yeah, like things like Jaws, where ultimately, did we know better back then? I mean, I'll give Steven Spielberg a lot of credit for being obviously a very talented director, but if if they'd had the, the budget and the shark had worked, like, would it have been a lot closer to Deep Blue Sea than the movie we got? Probably. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> just because you don't you don't know necessarily how well it's going to work to 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 play the shark so coyly and 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 similarly with this film I think that it's pretty clear as much as I'm a John Carpenter devotee that there's happy accidents in this movie as well. So moving on, it finally gets dark, which um as a side note, um they went and reshot this later because the movie was uh running short and they also had the um, awareness to see that it went from broad daylight to dark in like one second. So they're like, ah, we need some kind of twilighty business. And that's where we get one last uh, Lori and Annie driving around scene. And you also, the dialogue, I think helpfully establishes the Ben Tramer idea that this could be Lori's date to the dance she wasn't going to go to anyway. I really dig that little scene right there. And it is, uh, I'm not surprised that they went back and shot that later because it has a, a vastly different flavor uh, visually than the rest of the driving around scenes. It's a lot more verite. Uh, it almost, I, I want to say that we might even get like some lens flare. Uh, it, it has like a kind of a golden hour y kind of a feel to it. It's and, shot uh, from the back seat, which is really interesting. Yeah. 
it's a lot more. Uh, I, I don't want to use the word raw, but I, I guess verite is what you would say. And it's also the dialogue is very blunt right there because uh, you know Lori kind of she says something and uh, and and Annie, Annie you know is like uh, I, I didn't even know that you thought about stuff like that and that lands a little too it's a little harder than she meant because uh, they actually kind of fall silent for a few seconds and Annie apologizes. I think for the first time, which is a rare occurrence for her character as a whole, it's uh, raw and honest and kind of a, it, it's a stronger feel dramatically uh, and visually than a lot of the other driving around scenes, which are kind of flat, flatly lit and widely shot for the most part, you know, and I don't know, I, I just really enjoyed it. And yeah, we, we do kind of Im- immediately go from that to just pitch darkness. It is like kind of a, oh, okay. They said in the commentary, they actually use sort of a, um, you know, developing trick where they sort of artificially begin to dim the frame at the very end of, of the driving in the, in the sundown part so that it, it segues a little better to the next shot, which is, yeah, like almost full darkness with the headlights, uh, which pick up, by the way, uh, some palm trees. Oh, really? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it picks the, up the some the palm only, trees. The, the only, like, I don't, I don't know if you want to call it and add anything, but uh, I, I did notice that there is one shot, like, I, I want to say, like, either in that scene or the one right before it, where there's like an old man taking out the trash in the background who kind of abruptly vanishes, but I, I, I didn't. It's so, so minor that I, I wasn't like, oh, editing. Sure, absolutely. So we established that all the parents are out pretty late on Halloween night and still having fun, which I do think is is kind of interesting. Like, generationally, the parents of these teenagers, like, oh, it's Halloween night? Well, you know, we're going to be out till midnight. And uh, I don't know. I think that's that's kind of interesting or... Or fun. Well, I think there's something to be said about the role that, like, the role that adults play in this whole movie. Um, they're they're generally unreliable. They're not around. I mean, it crystallizes in the moment when Lori goes and bangs on the door and tries to get someone to help her, and they close the blinds and turn off the lights. Yeah, which it's, doesn't strike me as very small town comfort at all uh well but it's i think it's more about how you isolate teenagers right teenagers aren't to be trusted by adults they're they're i mean there's not even you know you have loomis and you have sheriff Brackett, but they're all pretty useless uh if they're around at all i mean the parents are not present in any sort of meaningful way there's very much this sense of how all these teenagers they're they're drinking, they're, they can kind of do whatever they want. They, you know, Paul figures out, well, my parents, I'm grounded, but my parents went out. So I can just, I can just leave, like, come get me. Talking about generational difficulties, I, there, there was that time when kids weren't so closely helicoptered. By, by the time they could, like, kind of feed themselves in a reliable fashion, it's just like, all right, go outside and play. Come back when the lights come back on. And I actually grew up in that, you know, to the extent, you know, that my parents very, you know, almost every year went out on Halloween and got fucking hammered, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's it, kind it, of it, odd it, for it, us it, because like, you know, I mean, yeah, I guess Vic and I, um, certainly me, cause I don't even have any kids yet. Um, we'll be having kids older potentially than these folks. But like, to me, it, it, it's, it's interesting that the parents are so young ish in this movie that like Halloween is like, are definitely 
they're partying. When I was a kid, a lot of the horror classics that we talk about in this podcast, I saw for the first time on Halloween night while my parents were out getting hammered mm-hmm. uh, with their friends, and they left me at home alone, parked in front of the TV, watching horror movies. Kim and I sometimes, for Halloween, we'll just like watch a horror movie at home. We won't even go out and... You know, we don't even have kids yet. <laughs> like Paul, by the time I was in late junior high, early high school, that's when I started sneaking out on Halloween. You know, my parents would be like, all right, well, you stay here and watch horror movies like you do every year. I'd be like, okie doke, and then I'd go out and <laughs> smoke weed in the park. You know, and, and, you know so it, it's funny that, I, I, you know, first I saw teenagers do this in Halloween, and then I replicated that exact same behavior on Halloween in my own life, you know, so I, I don't know if uh, that's a case to be made for horror movies uh, ruin the moral fabric of our youth, but it, I guess it did mine. <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that's closer to liking what somebody's wearing in a movie and saying, I'd like those sunglasses or that jacket than, oh, yeah. you know, somebody, somebody killed somebody in a movie. Now I'm a psychopath. So it's all good. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, I even noticed, and again, just because I've, been through the babysitter thing you know recently like when annie shows up like the parents are like oh good she's here let's get out you know what i mean like it's they they literally like annie walks in and the parents walk out and that's it you know it's like i bring her in i bring the babysitter in this is the here's the emergency contact and like you know there's there's much more sort of making sure the kids aren't going to freak out and blah, blah, blah. Like, nope, they're like, got a key party to go to. See you later. Uh, <laughs> yeah, seriously. In, the, in this I, world particularly, you know the parents have their own psychosexual dramas going on. Yeah. Well, well, their kids are getting murdered by a psychopath. They're, they're at like some frigid key party somewhere. <laughs> well, because if they have the same view of sexuality that their kids do, you know, like if they're just as – fixated on who wants them and who do they want and what does that mean? Like, yeah, they're, they're probably out there, you know, in their own version of what the school dance would have been and uh, what Linda and Bob end up doing. Keep in mind, uh, when Michael Myers commits his first murder, the parents are out very clearly on the town, you know, they're dressed for an evening out with their daughter having sex while they're gone. Yeah, absolutely. Loomis and the sheriff have this conversation. And to Mike's point earlier about the Loomis being useless tally that we might be keeping throughout the film, I I would add this one. Loomis forbids uh, Brackett from notifying the TV or radio, the media, um, that this is happening or that there might be a a danger in the community. He forbids that. Yeah, because he believes that people will be seeing Michael on every street corner. All yeah, right. it's, okay. it's the most ludicrous yeah. uh, thought process ever. Right, but, <laughs> because there are so many TVs in this movie. I don't think we, 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 we see, a, you know, we hear a few radios, but there's a lot of TVs. Everybody's watching TV. How many characters in this movie would have directly benefited from some kind of TV news uh, bulletin about an escaped mental patient coming to Haddonfield? So yeah, yeah, that, that's, a, been that's nice. a lost. <laughs> would, would have been helpful. You, you could almost have a situation where, like, uh, you know, it's on the news, but they don't want to watch it because the kids don't want to watch the news because it's boring or something like that. You know, it's like now we want to watch the horror movies. I would have bought I, they're, that they're, a lot more. I would have preferred. Yeah, that. yeah. I think it says something about Bracket too that he's like, 
you know, are, are you a, a, a psychiatrist from out of town? Are you sure that I shouldn't notify the, the media? Like, why is he asking Loomis if he should do that? They're both pretty ridiculous because it's, okay, listen, this dude is a murderer. He escaped from a mental hospital. He's already killed once that we know of, stole the dude's car and clothes. He's, we know for a fact that he's, he's coming here and uh, Loomis concocts this, this asinine reason not to bomb out this news to the entire community. And the cop continually throughout the entire thing is like, eh, it's just kids. It's yep. kids. Yeah. It's just kids. Until finally, there's a scene that's a lot of fun. And that's one where the kids try to dare each other to go into the, the Myers haunted house. And I, I think there was a missed opportunity. It should have been the bully who gets scared by Loomis because Loomis plays a little prank on them. Uh, and it's funny that even though he's this quote unquote respected psychi- psychiatrist, and he's this very serious character and you know, he's an older man. And he's got a British accent, but yeah, he still gets in the Halloween spirit of playing a little prank on, <laughs> on people and spooking children with a scary voice from behind a bush. He, he smiles. He smiles. Yeah. 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 He's, he's very, smile afterward it's so perfect and what's even better is uh you know he's got his eyes are wide he's got a big smile he's caught up in in an almost childlike glee of playing a halloween prank and then he gets scared by the cop who taps him on the shoulder and goes Whoa! <laughs> it's like, it's by the way that's two jump scares involving the sheriff just walking up to somebody like put yeah, a bell on that guy the the cop is like you know it's going to take more in your fancy talk to convince me and loomis immediately responds with Fancy talk. And the cop yeah. says, well, fancy, like I said, fancy talk isn't going to happen. Yeah. You know, by the way, but, Brackett takes nothing like Loomis says with any respect. But but when he tells him not to put out the bulletin, he's like, oh, yeah, of course, we won't. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it's just kids getting high. They're, you know, they're, they're trick-or-treating. They're parking. They're getting high. La, la, la. So there's something uh, crazy but, that happens that I have to ask. Like, What's that? All right, they're in the abandoned house having these kinds of conversations, the two guys. Uh-huh. And suddenly a traffic light swings into the window and breaks it with Loomis standing right there. Yeah. What I, the I, fuck? I went back and rewatched that scene like two or three times. And keep in mind, I watch this movie like every year on Halloween. And I've, I've, to this day, I'm still baffled by what exactly happens to that scene because – the window breaks somehow, and it's obviously the movie is motivating Loomis to pull out his gun to establish his guy gun on him. But Which goes nowhere uh, because it's not it, like uh, Brackett takes his gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in so many ways, this movie is so brilliant and it's so elevated. But at the same time, you can kind of squint and see how people of the time when this movie came out would consider it a B movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, stuff like, I mean, these are some awkward jump scares. I agree. I did the same thing. I stared at the thing that smashed into the window and went, what the, what the fuck is that? Like, is it yeah. do it with the blinds or the shades? Like, what? Combined with uh, probably some of the clunkiest dialogue of the entire movie, when they have the kind of, you know, fancy talk dialogue, which is like broad cowboy screenwriting. You're telling me that these people are lined up for a slaughterhouse or something, you know, along those lines. And it's like, oh, dude, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned cowboy talk, and we know that uh, Carpenter loves uh, Howard Hawks and westerns and stuff like sure. that. Sure, yeah. So. The dialogue is very frequently very good, uh, except for when it's not. 
And if you're right, then damn you for letting him out. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, come on, man. <laughs> it's like he, that, that, lands, that lands with a thud. Well, there's so much uh, shitting on Loomis that happens in this film. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, which I guess if we're, again, if we're keeping score on how uh, effective Loomis is in the film as a character, I guess maybe his incompetence is just an aura that other people sense. But my God, does, <laughs> my God, does he take a lot of blame for stuff that, you know, realistically, all he's been doing all along has been telling everyone, like, you should be worried about this guy. And twice in this movie, other uh, authority figures are like, well, it's your fault that he's out. I mean, yeah, no. Yeah. God, damn you, God damn you for letting him out. Let him out. What the hell, man? I wasn't even there. Yeah. I'm the yeah. guy who's been telling you you needed to fucking put this guy in 50 cages underground. But whatever. <laughs> so yeah, later in the night, Lori goes over to babysit Tommy while Annie babysits Lindsay Wallace just across the street. There's a very clear spatial relationship between these two houses that much of Act 3, if not the second half of Act 2, actually, are going to unfold in. And uh, Michael is there and watching them, and no one is aware of that fact. So Annie... Except uh, for Tommy... Oh, yes, exactly. While Annie is on the phone with Lori, telling her that she told Ben Tramer how attractive Lori finds him, Tommy looks out the window and correctly identifies the shape of Michael Myers as the boogeyman. I guess because he's conveniently standing in a pool of light, clearly staring, silhouetted, into Annie's window across the street. But he's gone when Lori comes to see for herself. It's kind of a cool and fun scene because the two guardians of these children are way, way, way more interested in this kind of petty high school romantic drama than they are. And the, the kid is like, there is a serial killer outside. And his, his given babies are like, you know, takes a cursory glance out the window. There's no one there and goes back to the drama. And well, uh, You definitely don't trust a, a kid's uh, perspective if you don't even trust your own senses, you know, like... Uh. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. But if there is one thing that I, I think this movie shares with Friday the 13th, well, I, I mean, I, I, obviously Friday the 13th drew heavily from Halloween. Hey, that's a bold statement. No, just kidding. Yeah, yeah I, I know. Um, besides having a killer running around and attacking teenagers. I think the other thing that Friday the 13th really kind of draws on from Halloween is the sense of these terrible things happen due to the lack of responsibility of teenagers who uh, are, 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 are uh, I would say, distracted by... Lust. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because in, in Halloween, there are warning bells all over the place, but uh, no one is paying attention because you know the girls are way more wrapped up in high school romance dramas. They're way more interested in that kind of stuff than paying attention to actually doing their job of you know keeping these kids safe. Which is uh, such right- a weird thing for like, like just honestly, when you look at okay themes of movies. You yeah. know where we really have a problem in this society is that when we hire teenagers for very small amounts of money, if any, to look after our children as camp counselors <laughs> or babysitters, and God damn it, they don't do a good job. 
<laughs> I think you're right, John. I think the lesson is that you should never trust a teenager with your children unless you have a key party to go to. And then <laughs> what? really, what are you going to do? If you only watched horror movies or slasher movies, you would think that the greatest societal ills that we face were poor babysitters and camp counselors. Yeah, you know? the, the fact that teenagers cannot be trusted with, to take care of children. <laughs> yes, the custodianship of children is at an all-time low in this country and something must be done about it. <laughs> Alright, so one of those custodians of children is Annie and fortunately for um, those of us in the audience that wanted to see something like this, she randomly gets something all over her clothes. I think it's hot butter from the popcorn. And she, yeah. has to, uh, she has to disrobe in the kitchen, and uh, that will uh, ultimately lead her to her doom. The first thing that I notice is she's not wearing a bra, uh, but she doesn't she doesn't turn around. But then she spends the rest of the scene kind of padding around in her, in her in her goofy yellow knee highs, which I think is is uh, she she's an adorable character on a lot of levels, uh, mostly for her personality. But I, I do just like the you know there's a charm to this entire scene. I, I, I know that it's probably meant gratuitously, but she's such a fun character that I, I'm just kind of having fun with her in a way. By when the I way, she, she looks really good, but the fact that she was in Assault on Precinct 13, you know, I don't know, five or more years earlier in terms of when they yeah. shot, and she's playing a teenager here. I mean, yeah, I mean, good on you for, for, for playing that role. And I wouldn't say I look at her any more than you know, anybody on Beverly Hills 90210 or anything else and say, well, that's not a teenager. But yeah, this girl is not a teenager. <laughs> it bespeaks her range because uh, she has a very sultry feel uh, in Assault. Yeah, she, she comes across as like a, like a gangster mall in that movie. You know, she, she looks like she came off the cover of a Pulp Fiction novel. Yeah, you know, in terms of her eyes and the way she smokes and, you know, just her demeanor. And in this one, you know, she was just kind of bopping around that kitchen in this very youthful way, you know, and, and she's still attractive. But I, again, you know, I, she gear shifts in like this vastly more adorable space. We, we can beat up on horror movies as a whole and perhaps earlier horror movies in particular for there. There wasn't a great deal of action range, but I, I think the girls just fucking killed it in this movie. I, I think it's one of the main reasons why this movie is, is a classic besides the the shape and the the innovation of the direction is also we have, we have these three girls who just, you know, act, act as an engine throughout the entire thing. Well, we spend most of our time with them. I mean, the movie is really about them and their personalities and their relationships. And then, you know, Michael is on the screen for, you know, 10 to 15% of it. So he's very clumsy outside observing Annie, uh, and he bangs into a ceramic planter and it breaks. Uh, the dog, uh, Lester, I believe comes to bark at him. Again, there's a warning bell that goes completely ignored because Lester comes into the kitchen and starts barking his head off. And Annie, of course, makes a joke of, of uh, you know, Lester, the dog is about to tear off my head. Will you let the dog out, please? So lets the dog out. And she's like, yeah, he keeps barking. And then like he whines and falls silent. She's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God the dog shut up. <laughs> she says, guess he found a hot date. Every little thing has to be processed through the lens of uh, a, a sexual element or a mm -hmm. relationship thing or a one-track mind. All three of them. Yeah, I mean, well, like, just cinematically, like, that is the – that's where this movie's head is at. 
Carpenter, I, I feel like, has denied repeatedly this kind of psychosexual aspect to Michael Myers. And yet, it's like I'm struck by the fact that when he sort of clumsily knocks this pot down and breaks it, it's when she's taking off her clothes. The fact that she turns around immediately after having been naked and is not at all alarmed that it sounds like someone's been outside watching her. And that this seems to trigger Michael's obsession with her sort of culminates in, in her death, much like with his sister, who was killed while topless immediately after having sex with her boyfriend, much like Bob and Linda, who he kills right after they've had sex. It seems like a startling coincidence. Like, maybe it's not something conscious on his part, but boy, there seems to be an intimate connection between Michael's bloodlust and sexuality on the part of teenage girls. It also strikes me how long he takes. And I, I realize that it takes him a long time to get around to killing her, primarily to build suspense. It's for cinematic reasons. Yes. But if we lay that on character reasons, like he really thinks for a really long time before he acts. Yeah, you know, he's very comfortable with sitting and staring at a wall for 15 years. And even when he gets out and he's got a potential victim directly in front of him, he's still in no particular rush. He's so yeah. patient. He's so patient. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we don't know exactly why, whether it's a adjudication process of some kind, or if he actually is taking a degree of pleasure in the voyeurism of uh, secondhand appreciation of their pleasures, which then they must be punished for. Even with his sister, when he's a child, uh, he has to kind of creep around on the outside. He watches from outside. Loomis correctly points out when they're in her room, Michael could have been outside and looking through this window, la la la, back in that night. He's, he's a creepy, peeping Tommy kind of a guy. Well, nothing about what we see from Judith and the boyfriend. And remember last time we talked about the sort of casual, disdainful look that he throws up the stairs at her when he says he's going to call her back. Nothing yeah, about yeah, that yeah. encounter suggested that she lost her virginity that night. And so to me, it suggests that Michael has witnessed or at least been aware of the fact that his sister has done this before. Maybe it just elevated or escalated rather from mere voyeurism and judgment to action on this particular occasion. But it was not the first time that he had been the fly on the wall for sexual activity. So Sheriff Brackett's out patrolling the streets and Loomis is waiting at the, <laughs> he's, he's a sentry at that Myers house, convinced that Michael's coming back there, which of course Michael never does. But meanwhile, Annie goes to an outbuilding to do her laundry and get that butter out of her pants. And Michael is outside the door. Annie senses it and she says, Paul, is this one of your cheap tricks? Ooh, ouch. Guess not. <laughs> no tricks for Annie tonight. Um, yeah, yeah, again. It's like <laughs> <laughs> That's some painful dialogue. But I, I actually think it's pretty funny. But uh, And then she gets into this comic misadventure in which she tries to get out the window to uh, answer the phone for Paul. <laughs> well, I mean, I think she definitely, uh, as a physical comedian, she sells this. Um, she gets locked in the laundry room. I don't know. I feel like... The door was not locked. I mean, you can't really lock somebody inside a laundry room, right? But yeah, like, it's it's one of the only magic quote unquote magical things that Michael does here is mm-hmm. uh, 
I, I can kind of buy that he would slam the door the first time, but then the door kind of slams and locks by itself the second time, and that's how she gets trapped in there. And uh, I, I don't know if the movie is trying to tell us that Michael does it or does it happen by accident. I, I would be baffled if we're trying to if it's trying to tell us it's accident, but I don't know how Michael could do that on screen. I, I, I think it's just one of those slasher movie things. That, well, that, that slasher villains get to do, like Jason gets to teleport through the woods, you know, shit like that. Or it could just be her incompetence. But the seven-year-old has no trouble opening the door that Annie couldn't. Well, wait, right. she's, she's coming from the other side. I mean, that's the, the feeble explanation that's offered is when Lindsay opens the door and comes in and says, you locked yourself in. As though perhaps there was some lock. I mean, again, I, I, I struggle to imagine a door with a lock on the outside. Look, this is one of the things you just kind of have to buy along with your ticket when you come into a movie like this. So Annie is somehow stuck in a window now with her pantied ass sticking out. Any way to cram some organic, quote-unquote, <laughs> cheesecake into this flick? <laughs> Not that it's particularly sexy. Uh, I Personally, I think yeah. the little girl should have laughed at her. I think that would have... It's played way more for laughs than than sex appeal. Right. I mean, yeah, we, we do get a panty shot, but it's it's really clowny. And then her foot gets stuck at that wire rack thing on top of everything else. Well, that's like, what I, I like. I, like that's a little touch that obviously I think she improvised, and I think it it really it works. And I think it is uh, kind of funny on some level that the girl Lindsay has no reaction uh, to finding right. Annie in this predicament, and she yeah. just. But then, like, there's a kind of a, a setup and payoff that she promptly gets on the phone and tells Paul that Annie got stuck in the window after Annie begged her not to share that information. And his reaction's funny. Stuck, huh? Yeah. And she's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, but uh, her, her return dialogue is actually pretty sharp, where uh, she says something along the lines of, uh, what are we talking about when we can, when we could come on yeah. over here and we just start doing it? I mean, I've got lots of positions you could be stuck in, but why don't yeah, you come over here? Exactly. Sexy and kind of, it's a sharp little turn of phrase. It's, I, I, that's actually, a few minutes ago I was beating up on the screenwriting, and now it's like, I actually really like those lines a lot. She knows uh, that she's seen him in those type of predicaments before. Lindsay's uh, deadpan reaction to the entire thing bespeaks the, in all likelihood, Annie has, has babysat for her before, and she's accustomed to these comic antics when this girl is around. She knows the drill. She knows the drill. <laughs> so I noticed when all the girls talk about their boyfriends, they say really shitty things about them, like all the time. Like it's, oh, Jerko figured out a way to sneak out. And, and it's almost constantly dismissive of like the boys, once they've got them in their, uh, you know, their, their kind of sexual uh, web. Then it's like, well, you know, this fucking idiot got grounded. Like, what a fucking moron. You know. <laughs> well, I think you're talking about Annie and Paul for sure. I don't well, know. Well, that, does Linda talk shit about Bob? He does. And I can't, it's funny because I can't remember the line specifically, but like when they're getting out of the van with the beer cans and everything else. There's, so she says a couple of fairly derisive things about Bob, too. Um, which Bob deserves. Bob sucks. I just want to be clear about this. <laughs> like not only is his name Bob, which is just terrible, but yeah, that guy, that guy just sucks. But uh, no, but it's I just in terms of the dynamic. And again, I, I wish I had made better notes of which exact examples of it there are. But there's a, there's a lot of them 
both from uh, Linda and from Annie, and it gave me the sense of, yes, these girls are constantly sort of fixated on sex and boys and dating and, like, who's going to sneak out and blah, blah, blah to fool around, but they approach it very much from a place of power. Uh, it's very much like these guys are kind of these half-witted tools that are to be used for sex, uh, but not there's not a lot of genuine affection as much as there is kind of playful coyness between them. It's not like the guys are taking these relationships all that seriously themselves. You know, it's like, uh, you know, Ben Tramer's out drinking with his buddy. They're showing up because they're pretty sure that they can get laid. And if that wasn't the scenario, it's not like they'd be fucking making jack-o'-lanterns with them and watching horror movies. They'd be out doing something else. Yeah, so, nobody's idealizing anyone in this scenario. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but even the little girl wants to hang out with a boy. Like, because Lindsay is kind of eager to see Tommy. That's the worm on the hook. Is, uh, yeah, hey, how about you could go watch a movie with uh, Tommy across Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. So we find out that uh, Tommy reads fake comic books. Because Neut- Neutron Man, Tarantula Lazer Man. Man. It, it, it's funny how you know, uh, Lori's reaction to that is like, yeah, I can see why your mom doesn't like you reading this stuff. Like, like it's this awful thing to read Laser Man. Her reaction is outsized to the the threat that Laser Man poses to this this kid's uh, moral turpitude. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I fully intend on making Tarantula Man my next spec, okay? I'm going to redeem Tarantula Man. There we go. Uh, I'll, I'll take Laser Man. I just, TJ Laser. I, t- I took the easy one, Mike. Sorry. <laughs> um, I always wondered after the film, because Lori obviously survives, spoiler, you know, do you think she goes to the dance with Ben Tramer? Yeah, <laughs> I think Ben Tramer gets run over by a car in Halloween too. Yeah, I think oh, that's that, absolutely, that's that's right. <laughs> to kind of drill down for a second, I will say that the sequence in which Annie dies, on the one hand, it is very creepy, but I've seen this movie enough times that I, I've kind of started to see the holes in how it's constructed, uh, because she goes out to the car. And the car is locked. And she's like, oh, no, I don't have keys. Well, how did you think that you're going to start the car if you don't have the car keys in your hand? And so she goes back inside. She gets the keys from her purse. So obviously it's her car. Goes back out. And then this time when she gets into the car, she doesn't try to unlock the car. She just pulls on the car door handle, and this time it's unlocked. And that's the way to signal to the audience that Michael Myers has gotten into the car. But see, here's the thing again. He's used his special slasher power to unlock a door this time. Because not only does she not try to, not only does she not try to unlock a previously locked car door when she gets into this car, but Michael Myers has been able to magically unlock the door from the outside and get into the car before she got there. So you watch it, you enjoy it, but does it hold up to scrutiny? Eh, You know? He's he's obviously done some kind of correspondence course in locksmithing and driving a car. Someone, someone taught him how not only how to drive it, but also to break into them. Yeah, <laughs> he has spent a lot of time like mastering locks and. I guess for budgetary reasons, I can see why they didn't do this. But all they had to show was a broken window somewhere 
on the other side of the car in the actual murder scene. You know what I mean? That Michael Michael broke a window, unlocked the car, and snuck inside, and then waited for Annie to get in. They want to construct a scene in which she goes to the car, uh, she comes back, and she, she's forced for whatever reason to leave the car, come back to it, and now something is different. And, uh, you know, the, the coolest and most subtle thing is she notices the condensation of Michael's heavy breathing inside of... Wonderful touch. And uh, that she touches uh, a couple of times before he comes after her. We associate Michael Myers with that butcher knife, but yeah. he doesn't stab a lot of people. Mostly, like, the dog, I think he breaks the neck. Annie, he chokes... Uh, Lori, he tries to choke. Uh, uh, Linda, he chokes. Like it's strange. No, he, he does slash Annie's throat. Throat. That's sure? how he actually. Yeah, that, that's the coup de gras. Wait, 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 Mike, are you confirming that? I don't think he slashes her throat. I think he stabs her in the heart or something like that. Because uh, uh, if you watch the scene very carefully, he's got like one hand around her neck and straight. It's strangle, 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 strangle. And then finally, like, the other hand kind of comes around, and camera doesn't really catch the knife, actually. It, it, the, the stab is actually sold with uh, a sound effect. You get, a, like, kind of a chopping sound effect. And for a very long time, I didn't think that she gets stabbed at all. It's only within, like, the last, like, maybe three or four years ago I realized. So I'm like, oh, shit, he stabs her at the end of that. I've watched this movie dozens of times. Yeah. I finally realized that. <laughs> and given your reaction, yeah, exactly. It's not 100% obvious that he stabs her at the end of that attack. Yeah. You know, when she's lying on the bed beneath the tombstone positioned later, like in my mind's eye, and honestly, yeah, I don't have any, I didn't make a note of it. I might be making this up, but I kind of thought that we saw blood on her throat. Now, I've got the movie pulled up in front of me. I'm going to cycle oh, through and yeah. Through. The Google image it, yeah. Talk amongst yourselves. So I do have a point about Annie here um, and what led her to this. I think that everyone has failed her to a degree to lead her to this juncture, even though her judgment, uh, as you said, with like not being aware of the fact that the door is open and then it's not, even though the movie does take some pains to convey her as being distracted and just, you know, not particularly observant and kind of on autopilot, which I, honestly I do kind of buy it to some degree. Uh, John, I'm looking at the image and uh, yeah, her, her throat is slashed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a creepy fucking image. It, it, it's kind of a crude makeup effect though. If you're really looking at it, but I, I guess you could kind of say that's probably the bruising. Yeah. Well, I agree with you guys to the, to the I'm extent. Looking at the image, I can't quite tell. Well, I, yeah, I can. I, regardless, I, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, when it's happening, you you kind of have this implied use of the knife there, but it's um, yeah, yeah. I mean, they definitely didn't get Tom Savini to like you know have a fucking butcher knife um, stabbing through someone's trachea yeah. or anything like it's that. Not, it's not thoroughly uh, sold. Uh, Vic, Vic, you can kind of clearly see it, not in the wide shot, but in the closer steady cam shot when Lori first walks into the room and looks down at her right. from POV. But uh, yeah, you, you can definitely see a, a throat slash right there. But much like you, I, after dozens and dozens and dozens of viewings, I, I just learned something. I did not. And that's just, well, the wonderful you know. thing of doing this podcast is you learn something new from really doing the, the loving but thorough autopsy. <laughs> that's right. Back to my point here about people failing Annie. Like, her father is the goddamn sheriff. You know, he's had reason for concern for 
at least three or four hours at this point. Does he call home? Does he, you know, try to protect his family? No. Lori, her best friend, has seen this dude several times today. But nobody, and Loomis knows, Loomis did not, you know, let the media get involved. No one has told her to take care and keep an eye out for something. She's completely heedless and carefree through this entire sequence. Would it matter? I don't know. Maybe not. But it's a little annoying to me, not in like a critical of the film way, but like just, you know, on a more just meta um, looking at at with within the world of the story. It's just frustrating that this character has to meet this end that everyone has let her down. I think it actually it's it's something to think about. It's kind of powerful, but it's like it's sad. So she gets killed here. It's, it's definitely uh, creepy for the audience. I think on the whole, I count this as a win for the film because, you know, you still have to be a semi-alert audience member to notice that now the door is unlocked. And there is a wonderful little thrill of dread when she gets there and the door opens. And yeah, you're lamenting poor clueless Annie not noticing that fact, but it's still kind of like a, in a slight way, it feels like a win to the audience member who's really uh, paying attention. So as Michael's killing her, we get a lot of grunting and breathing, which, yeah, you don't always get in these films. Uh, Like, it just makes it very visceral that we, uh, you know, he's a biological and organic entity at this point. And you sort of get the the strain, um, the physical component of this, the down-to-earthness as he uh, chokes her out. And I think that on some level, whether it's Carpenter or the actresses, somebody thought that your eyes cross when you're dead. Uh, Clearly, Carpenter must have liked it. But personally, I think it's kind of silly. Yeah, Uh, it it does kind of undercut the the scene a little bit when her eyes cross. But uh, everything before that, you know, I really enjoy uh, the fact that shot through uh, the windshield, which has already been condensed by his breathing, uh, but it gives the scene an almost underwater feel. Like like uh, his mask through that foggy windshield has a, a, a ghostly yeah. element to it. Uh, it really feels like she's not getting attacked by a 21-year-old guy. She's getting attacked by an angry spirit. Yeah, it has kind of a dreamlike quality. It's definitely cool yeah. that we're outside of the car for this. Uh, it's an interesting angle to witness it. Definitely. It's visceral. Like, on balance, this movie's kills, you know, and there's very few of them, really, are way below the standards that we become accustomed to with the Friday the 13th films. You know, in terms of just, again, like Tom Savini-ness, um, cleverness combined with physical and makeup effects like it's very yeah i mean you could say it's classy or minimalist but like as we've been talking about with this annie kill like it's not even really clear exactly how he kills her and you you could interpret that as uh if you're just on a somewhat class level judging these movies like oh how good are the kills like the kills are not great in this movie Right, yeah, I, I think that this movie is still, you know, you're looking at the precedence of right. Psycho, Black Christmas, almost no gore in either film. This this film probably seems, you know, extreme and shocking at the time. By the time they get around to Friday the 13th, it's like, all right, well, we don't have Carpenter, we don't have Jamie Lee Curtis, what do we have? 
we got Savini. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like you play to your strengths, man. <laughs> that is like, true, but I mean, like if you were to watch the shower sheen, bleh, shower sheen, um, the, yeah. the shower scene in Psycho and and this kill back to back, I I don't think it would be a close vote as to which is um, more disturbing or effective. Right. There is something cold and long about these kills. Jason has a tendency to cut people's heads off or stab an arrow through their throats or those things happen very quickly. These kills, both Annie and Linda and even Bob to an extent, they happen very slowly. There's a lot of, you guys talk a lot about the, the, the camera sort of outside. The camera cuts inside and you see her feet kicking against the door as she twists her body around and it takes a long time. Yeah. Uh, I actually find that a little more unsettling than some of the, the gorier kills. Now, again, a lot of that has to do with the fact that Michael winds up doing a lot of strangulation in this movie as opposed to stabbing. Well, that's or, a very or, valid point, uh, Vic. And I, I think I would say that like, if you gave me the choice, Jason is going to kill you or Michael Myers – like I think that you know we haven't watched all the Michael Myers movies yet, but you know I've seen most of them. I would say that yeah, I think that Jason has kind of more of an executioner's approach, and often like, hey, I'm alive, I'm having a good time. Oh shit, I'm dead. Whereas, yeah, now, now, now I have a thing in my head where yeah, where yeah. Michael stares at you for a couple of hours. Yeah, there's then, there's yeah, there's it, like it, more yeah. of just like with Jason, it's like a bolt of lightning. Whereas, yeah, I, I agree. There's a little bit more um, cruelty here. It's like being throttled by Hans Landa, you know, instead of like, you know, a spear. A, you know, you look down and, oh, shit, there's a spear coming on my chest. How that happened? There's a common household accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jason doesn't actually, I mean, we, we, we did like an uh, extended um, series of podcasts on him, but like off the top of my head, I can't think of many kills that I would describe as truly sadistic. Yeah, he, he just wants to fucking kill you. He just wants you dead. Whereas Michael really wants to enjoy killing you. He wants you to suffer. Well, yeah, um, I mean, you, you were talking about Bob earlier, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but the famous or infamous cocking of his head as he turns his head left and right and watches Bob struggle like an insect pinned to a board. There's, mm-hmm. there's there's definitely a different vibe to that than, I mean, yeah, Jason turned his head here and there and, you know, kind of did somewhat similar things. And he certainly killed people in some nasty ways. But, that, you know, there's definitely a more insidious, this film would have you believe, and throughout the series, dare I say, a satanic level of intent there's a lot more thought put in it. You know, Jason is, is like a wild animal. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're getting you're getting killed by a, a psycho berserker who lives out in the woods. Michael is, yeah, you're, you're getting not killed by an evil force that happens to inhabit this human being. Yeah, again, like with Jason, though, there, there's just an element of the executioner where he just wants to turn your light off. You know, that's all it yeah. is. Yeah. So, Laurie clearly does not believe it when once again Tommy claims to see the boogeyman, this time carrying Annie's corpse back into the house. Yeah, which is a creepy uh, fucking shot and uh, mm-hmm. a scene with several layers because once again we have a character trying to play boo with another character. In this case, he's trying to 
uh, play Boo at Lindsay, and in the course of doing so, he sees this you know, infinitely creepy scene of uh, Michael carrying the body outside. And I, I distinctly recall the first time I saw this movie with laser clarity. I remember being scared out of my fucking mind by that shot because it was it, it played so well. It's so well lit and so well framed, and it just plays. Holy shit, it's so good. But there's and, such a um, classical horror movie like vibe to this yeah. this, you know, behemoth yeah. of some kind carrying an unconscious or dead female like in his arms. Yeah. yeah. The last time we were talking about this movie, it's the you know what makes this film so chilling is it takes on, uh, an image that you would ordinarily associate with a, a Dracula film and you put it in the suburbs. It's happening right across the street, man. <laughs> well, and there's an active, um, not to sound pretentious, but there's an active dialectic going on between the old horror films that the characters are watching throughout this entire yeah. portion of the film and what's going on right. in real life outside of their door. And by any right. standard, like what's happening is much more modern and realistic because it's, you know, on some level as supernatural as Michael Myers may or may not be, it's a guy doing, you know, pretty primitive, basic, brutal things to people in the neighborhood. And it's right. kind of being juxtaposed to Howard Hawks' The Thing and Forbidden Planet. And it's kind of in a way, you know, it's... Reminding me of that one upsmanship that you saw in Evil Dead, where you have the ripped "Hills Have Eyes" poster in the in the basement. I, I, I last time we were talking about targets, I, I think that that's like the vastly closer analogy because yeah, I mean, in Halloween we have you know these kids are you know they're getting scared by you know quote unquote horror movies and it's like the scratchy black and white and there's a theremin playing mm -hmm. and woo, 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 and there's a ufo and you know there's you know guys in obvious sets going we should carry sidearms and that, yeah that, they're that. all they're and, all sci-fi horror in, in, yeah. interestingly like this sort of uh six hour marathon of horror films that is commanding yeah. airwaves they're all black and white sci-fi yeah. horror movies and i think yeah, yeah, where, yeah. You're, where you're going here i'll just say you know like in my opinion it's just like th this movie in some way is saying oh yeah you think that's scary this is this is really scary yeah and, and, and in targets it's uh you know you've got boris karloff and he's uh doing promo for this uh like this hammer type film where it's like you know, castle sets and he's like a vampire or something and, or a mad scientist. And, you know, and at the same time you have the vastly more visceral, real modern horror of a psycho kid, just like randomly shooting people while they're watching this like kind of corny old fashioned horror movie at, at a drive-in. You know, one and, day uh, there's going to be something where it's like Texas chainsaw and it's like, that's the sort of ironic, pathetic what people are watching and then the real horror is what happens in the movie because that's sort of the one-upsmanship that happens in this genre <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and, and that's going to be uh emoji it's going to be uh, the emoji horror movie they're going to be mm -hmm. like yeah you and your dad horror movies with your chainsaws and killers and whatnot what if you have an evil emoji that comes out of the phone and kills you yeah I, that's going to be so modern and shocking i guarantee you mike that we'll watch something that like in some way mocks our touchstone horror films and says, Oh yeah, you think that was intense? Check this out. And I, mean, I, I, I think that's good. I think that's progress. 
Yeah, absolutely, man. You, you always find evolution, and uh, you, you never want to stay in one place. I just want to say real quickly, can we point out that Tommy turns into kind of a dick? He oh. decides because he's been made from, because the bullies have scared him, that mm-hmm. he's going to try and scare Lindsay because he thinks that's cool. And that's what's going on in the scene where he's going he's gonna to hide and scare her, and then later he's chanting, he's going to get you, he's going to get you. He's doing the same thing to her that the bullies did to him. That's kind of a dick move for a kid. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it's I, kind of flirting in a way in that sort of pulling the pigtails flirting way. Like, I don't necessarily uh, think that he's doing it out of true malice. Not that we get as much interest from him in her as we see from her in him. The thing behind the drapes feels playful, and yeah. I like that. I like that it gets subverted on him in almost the exact same way that Loomis gets subverted, where he plays kind of a playful prank, uh, playing Boo on Halloween, and then he gets scared in turn. Whereas, you know, Tommy tries to play this kind of playful little prank on Lindsay, and he gets scared in turn by Michael Myers outside. But when he is, chan- you know, Vic, when, when he was chanting, he's got to get you, he's got to get you. Like, he is getting fucking weird. And I liked it that when Laurie shut that shit down real fast, fucking settle down. I, I, I think he's acting up because he's scared and he knows that there's something outside and he's not being believed. And he, he starts making these passive aggressive comments like, yeah, well, no one around here believes me. And then Lindsay says, I believe you, Tommy, which leaves Laurie by herself. And she kind of rolls her eyes at the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what somebody says when they um... – want to ally with somebody she's like well you know she Lindsay exactly yeah she she's (laughs) like that's basic human um i disagree i really think this is about oh the cool kids are cool because they made fun of me and they scared me and now it's my turn to be the bully hmm i I can't i can't disagree with that this feels like a power play where he's trying to scare Lindsay the way that they scared him so um i noticed a random uh thing here. I think it's funny that this movie has the L-named characters, Lee, bracket, Lori, Loomis, Lindsay, LaVon, Linda. <laughs> That's kind of weird and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And there's also kind of a LMP thing going on because, you know, beyond the L's, then we add Michael and Paul. So, mm. like, the naming conventions in this film seem yeah very uh right subconscious so yeah my note next here vic uh to your credit was tommy really enjoys scaring Lindsay twice he tries that she came here because she likes him so um the kids are watching forbidden planet and tommy watches the almost romantic image of michael carrying annie over the threshold across the street we get the bracket and loomis uh fancy talk bad dialogue alert Uh, But we do get the dark irony, of course, that death has not only come to Brackett's town. Moments ago, it came to Brackett's daughter. And I think the weird sort of cinematic language of watching Annie die and then cutting to her father, who's skeptical and he has no idea how right Loomis is. In fact, his own daughter has just died. There's like a weird movie doesn't make a big deal out of it, but if you're really kind of putting yourself in the place of the characters, that's a really horrible thing to realize. Yeah, skipping way, way, way ahead. That was probably my 
favorite thing about Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, uh, which, you know... Well, you just gets, skipped you about know, two years ahead, the way yeah, we yeah, record. Yeah, 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 <laughs> uh, our rate of progress, but uh, <laughs> uh, there's a scene where the cop comes home and uh, finds his daughter dead by Michael's hand, and he is completely ruined in a very human way because uh, her death is really horrible and gory and messy and it's one of the rare scenes in a slasher movie that I found to have any real ballast emotionally you know I, I'm that, glad that you brought that up because I look forward to that show because um, I believe I, I'm the only person on this podcast to have the distinction of getting drunk with a cast member of any of these films and I have gotten drunk with Kristen Klebe, who I believe is the character you're referring to. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, she did a great job and uh, dies horribly. So there you go. Um, <laughs> uh, I thought that it was a nice touch that when Linda and Bob arrive, Bob carries Linda over the exact same threshold that Michael had carried Annie a few minutes earlier. Like, that's just a weird... Um, synchronicity there and we learned that linda says totally a lot which apparently uh deborah hill thought was teen speak and she's not wrong the lenses of the camera or something give a lot of the shots here as we've touched on before a sort of a distorted view in the background but it doesn't hurt the mood linda and bob are having sex and Bob goes downstairs to get a beer for Linda. And I want to say that when they're having sex or about to have sex, I think I touched on this last week, uh, last time, but the phone rings again and um, that really puts him off his game. And after that conversation, we uh, leave the couple again, Bob and Linda. And then we come back and there's four or five apparently empty beer cans on the floor littered next to the bed of this poor family who Annie babysits for (laughs) after they (laughs) fucked in their bed. (laughs) As soon as they walk in, they immediately collapse on the uh, living room couch Mm -hmm. for a makeout session, uh, which is funny to me. But at the same time, it's cool because, you know, uh, camera pulls back and we find Michael in the foreground and he's right there. He's just outside the room. The circle of Michael's interest is tightening from car driving down the block to right outside the house to now he's just outside the room. I also like Bob's giant 70s glasses. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And they're about to be used to, um, I would say, unique effect. After shotgunning a six-pack in six minutes, Bob and, and Linda uh, christen, christen the sheets of this family's bed. And the sex goes on for a little while, and it reaches a quiet fruition in one take. It's not super believable, but, you know, it's not chased by any means. And we get from Linda's post-coital glow that uh, this is all she wants in life, I think, in some way. Uh, except for, uh, of course, cigarettes and beer. So Bob goes to get one, and he's creeped out by the kitchen door being open, and he calls out characters' names, which, you know, is a trope. Annie, Paul. And then he assumes that Linda has snuck downstairs from the bed to hide herself in the pantry. Linda, Uh you asshole. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. jerko, dummy, asshole. Yeah, it's it's just the way that these, these people talk to each other. It's not meant to be mean. It's they're they're just being fun. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So there's no Linda in the pantry, 
Uh, no. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked personally. I, I totally thought that she snuck down to the pantry. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, no. also, there's also not a cat, to be fair. Yeah. 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 Could have been a cat in the pantry, I'm just saying. Nor is it the doomsday guy who liked to hide in the pantry. In, uh, was it Friday the 13th is the first one where he's hiding in the pantry at random? And he mm-hmm. just comes out. And he's like, "You're all doomed." Yeah, the guy like, on the bike yeah. like uh, hangs out in the pantry for hours, waiting for someone to open the door so he can deliver that yeah. message. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know, but Bob thinks that uh, Linda is too lazy to get out of bed for beer, but she would totally sneak downstairs and hide in the pantry while he's in the same room. It's Halloween, and people like to play funny pranks on each other. And you get that from uh, Lori a bit later, where she starts to make the same assumptions, you know? Yeah. She comes into the house. Apparently, everyone does fuck with each other a lot. Well, see, here's the thing, though, is that becomes one of the corniest horror tropes that there are. We have a character walks into a somewhat mysterious scenario, and they start going... Guys, are you there? Bob, is that you? Linda, don't quit playing games. These days, you drop that into a movie and it's, you're just rolling your eyes. But in this film, which is probably where it began or else very close to it, it absolutely plays because it's Halloween. And we constantly see characters actually playing these, these funny little pranks on each other. So it makes complete sense that a character would be like, are you guys there? Are you fucking around? What's well, up? You I mean, know, it's funny blah, because blah, blah. I don't think this film does that like i don't there's not a lot of pranks in this film but other slasher movies you know bend over backwards and go out of their way to have the characters you know generate fake scares by um messing with each other yeah yeah, yeah. I, i'm not talking about Shelley in friday the 13th part three I'm, I'm talking about like you know just kind of constantly how everyone's just kind of playing these little boo things like loomis in the bushes and tommy in the drapes and you know the characters are just kind of like you know these little boo things you know so it makes sense that characters wouldn't come to the assumption that if there's something that is going on that they don't quite understand or they hear weird noise or, or doors open they think that someone's gonna like jump out and go blah ha ha you know well on some uh, level i would i think this film would benefit with one of those earlier in the in the film one of these friends actively like just scaring the fuck out of one of the other ones i i actually think that mm-hmm. that would set a precedent to explain how they're always defaulting to that uh but i mean it's not a big deal so if Bob doesn't notice the wind blowing the kitchen door ajar just a bit, he might have gone right back upstairs, and this would have played out slightly differently. But right. he starts opening doors, and, you know, like, we all, we've watched a lot of horror movies, and we all know the timing of, of scares, both real scares and jump scares or fake scares, is, um, it's an art. And I think mm-hmm. the timing on this kill is fucking excellent. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. like, you're not prepared when he opens the door, there's nothing there, and then he opens another door, and it's just, like, it's unconventional timing and all the cliches of horror and thriller uh, cinematic language. Like, it just, mm-hmm. somehow the beats, it's a little bit shocking. He just goes and he opens another door, and, and fucking Michael Myers just pours out of it and stabs him in the heart and he dies instantly 
and he's pinned to the door by the knife and staring at the body hanging two feet off the floor. You know, Michael turns his head left and right, silently regarding his work of art. And you can hear him breathing under his mask during this kill, as you could in Annie's demise. And I would say it's definitely one of the high points, five high points of this film. I absolutely agree. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of the entire movie. And it also tells us that I, you know, nothing about the scene tells us that Michael was lying in wait per se. Uh, I, I think that he heard Bob coming and just kind of stepped into the shadows opportunistically. And uh, it was probably going to wait for him to go back upstairs before he did something. And it was only because Bob decided to go rummaging around that, uh, you know, kind of forced Michael's hand. And so he just lunged. And that that's where we get an actual, like, kind of Jason Voorhees type kill. Also, bespeaking Jason's strength. Outside of the very end when he gets shot six times and runs away anyways, this is the only time that he evinces any kind of preternatural physical ability that he lifts this grown man up like that and pins him to the to the wall yeah you don't uh, get the feeling that bob is you know five three one thirty five you know no, like, yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, even though he's got the dorky glasses he, it looks like he plays on a team that he can lift any 18 year old guy up and pin him to the wall with a knife is uh, i mean that is massive massive power and that's when you're like oh shit maybe loomis is right maybe this dude is he's not just a crazy guy he He's, this is a supernatural force. The moment when he cocks his head at him reinforces everything that Loomis has told us about Michael, that he regards this death as dispassionately as we might look at a painting on a wall. Michael is in so many ways this blank slate on which we can project things, and the things that the movie gives us to fill in those pieces are all of them horrifyingly disturbing and this is the most direct because mostly we have people talking about michael we have loomis telling us what's going on in michael this is one of the few things that michael does distinctly that betrays some aspect of what's going on in him and what it betrays is really unsettling yes and i think that even when you said dispassionate i would argue that perhaps it's the opposite like it's one of the few indications of interest in what's happening where he's having some degree of curiosity or fascination yeah it's one of the few times that he's not just standing there staring mm-hmm. exactly it's a, it's a character beat like how yeah. fucked up of a character beat is that <laughs> yeah where we're like this is one of those moments where we can actually see the real michael like reacting in some way yeah So we cut from that to Linda filing her nails. And now we come to what we haven't watched all of them, but I'm going to say is probably it's safe to say is Michael's most whimsical kill in the entire series. This is more like something Freddie would do than Jason or what we think of as Michael Myers. It's not verbal, of course, but there's something prank-like or jokey or taunting or mocking or playful about taking Bob's fucking glasses and wearing them over a sheet in some strange half-assed impersonation of a guy that Michael has just killed, and yet he nonetheless tries to pull it off. I can't think of another time in this series when he pretends to be someone else and hangs out with his victim in this guise. It's so ridiculous, 
even juvenile, as a prank, that it seems like Michael is is literally, as a teenager would, playing a joke on Linda. And, of course, yeah. it's creepy as fuck at the same time. Because the audience knows who's under that sheet, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it is, from, from a character point of view, it's Michael Myers' version of a Halloween prank. Yep. But he's such a fucking psycho that all he can do is stand there silently when she keeps prompting him with taunts or her breasts until finally she huffs and gets on the phone. And then that's when he murders her. He turns, <laughs> she turns her back on him. This is so much deeper and richer and weird and confounding than almost any behavior he ever exhibits. Because it's like he is... Like, this is, on some level, as you said, Mike, the, the spirit of Halloween, just to fuck with people. And it's, it's, it's very far from being an executioner or just a meat grinder or just, you know, methodically killing people without emotion. Like, he is pretending to be her boyfriend for reasons that never become clear because it doesn't, it doesn't pay off. Like, he... I don't know what he thought would happen, but it doesn't because she she rejects the whole thing and she ignores it. But I, I, I do really, I, I love this because it's so strange and random. And apparently um, the writing process on this film was that, as I kind of suspected, but this commentary I just listened to confirmed, Deborah Hill wrote, the first draft of the script and then John Carpenter went and, you know, made his changes. And he said, this is one of the scenes that he on, on the the exact same time, he never changed it. And he felt very conflicted or he felt a lot of trepidation about keeping it. So he wasn't sure it was going to work, but, and yet he always left it. And this scene is exactly as it was in, in the first uh, draft and I think it, it sort of taps into things that I would have loved to have seen more of in the subsequent mm-hmm. films. Michael is very voyeuristic. It takes him a long time to act. And also throughout the entire film, concentric circles of, of his attention get the tighter and tighter and tighter. Mm-hmm. First he's driving by, then he gets out of the car and he walks by, then he's standing outside the window, then he actually goes inside the house and finally, he go, you know, and always it's to watch these girls, it's to watch these relationships, it's to watch these sexual encounters. And this is kind of as tight into the concentric circle as he can go and still remain a voyeur. Like he's you know, almost a surrogate or a spy or like this is as close as he comes to in some way he could actually participate under a stolen identity. And well, that, no, that it never it, happens anywhere else. Yeah. With the sheet over his head and knowing that, you know, she's going to be fooled by the glasses, it gives him the opportunity to be a voyeur from within the room, right. uh, but without having to act. Uh, or he, I, he would have no idea what to do if he was called upon to act. I mean, all I can do is stand there. I mean, that's why he stands there unresponsively, because he just wants to watch. And it's only when she finally disengages from him and he realizes that now the scene is over, he's not going to get anything more out of her, that's only then does he murder her. 
Yeah, but I mean, like on some level, this is as close as he comes to ever realizing any of those voyeuristic fantasies, you know, right? taking well, them to the next yeah, level. Yeah, but I, it's not like he crawls into bed with her. It's not uh, Revenge of the Nerds, you know, it's not like that. It's, you know, even when he's in the scene, he's still a spy. He's a voyeur. He's peeping Tom to just as close as he can get to his subject as possible. What I'm saying is that in the pantheon of slasher films, I think this is the closest any of these killers have ever gotten to getting it on ever. Hmm. You know? Yeah. Just couldn't disagree more. I think this is the biggest misstep the movie makes. Really? Um, I think that it's the the glasses on the outside of the sheet. The only possible explanation for that is that it is a it just a purely logistical necessity for her to assume that it's Bob under the sheet. Is that the glasses are what communicate that it's supposed to be Bob? It doesn't work for me. It actually pulls me out of the movie, and it's it's made all the worse by having just had this instance of him having pinned Bob to the wall. And having stared at him, like, communicated how utterly alien Michael is from other human beings by cocking his head to the right uh, and, and sort of observing this, this dead body uh, the way that he does. And then here he shows up, like, kind of trying to play a prank or a joke. It, goes, it, it makes him go from seeming alien and terrifying to seeming painfully awkward and kind of human. And it doesn't, it, for me, it doesn't work at all. Well, you know, Vic, I think that I, my opinion of this scene up until like literally the last time I watched this movie was pretty much in line with you. And mm. like half of me wants to launch the same attacks on it that you just did. And just that like, it's such a weirdly comical, out of character, strange thing that to have in one of these movies that it's yeah on some level it's a joke but i've i've come around to appreciating it because it stands out so much from everything else that that that's the reason i like it i think that there are some things that that the movie does that um uh, it, it does for, for script, for film, uh, for, for the movie, I would say. And obviously the scene doesn't work for you. Uh, but I, in terms of giving the audience a weird, creepy scene, whether it lines up with Michael's ordinary character or not, I would love to have been watching the scene play out for the first time to an audience, an unsuspecting audience. I mean, it's just fun for a horror movie audience to watch. And if that's what you're giving your audience, I don't, see how it's a failure of the film if you're a horror movie. Uh, you guys are both wrong. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's Anyways. awesome. All right. So we get the the payoff if you're following the uh, telephone antics in this film where uh, Lori gets a call and uh, instead this time her friend is not chewing. She's choking. And uh, it's not Annie. It's Linda. And... It's, it's disturbing, for sure, as we hear Linda die and Lori is uh, listening to it. But uh, she moves on from there, and we establish that uh, she's nerdy enough to have her own knitting needles at her babysitting gig. Right, right, right. <laughs> she knits for fun. She's a high school that, kid. It tells me a lot about that character. Yep. She, like, yep. she knits. 
And that will come into play. That will come into play. The movie did not invent the idea that going upstairs is scary, but uh, it becomes a very weirdly common trope of the slasher genre to have slow POVs going upstairs. The first time in this film with Michael in the open and now in Act 3, it's Lori ascending uh, the stairs uh, as she's um, investigating the other house. Meanwhile, Loomis uh, discovers the car that Michael stole, and he's combing the streets. But at this point, Lori doesn't actually think that anything is going on. Uh, Loomis's decision to hang out by the bushes of the Myers house has been a bust. Fortunately, he's turned around, and he's now prowling the neighborhood, which we have the sense will be relevant, and uh, it will Lori's suspicious. She's going to discover, of course, the corpses in the Wallace house. We get the classic horror movie trope as she's exploring a recitation of names. Annie, Linda, Bob, as she opens doors, Bob's corpse is gone. We have a character acting like she expects one of her friends to jump out and scare her, as we just talked about. Uh, Again, you're meant to assume that this is what kids do to each other all the time. So she's talking to an invisible Annie about the joke not being funny anymore. Cut it out. You'll be sorry, etc., etc. And you get a ray of light, however, filtering from one cracked door in this house. It's beckoning Lori and us to it, which is very good stuff. It is a great sequence. Oh, God. Yeah, absolutely. Right before she went over there, uh, she noticed that the lights turn out while she's on that phone call. So she knows someone is there and someone turned out the lights, but right. no, one, no one's talking to her on the phone. That's fucking creepy. Yes. So uh, while Lori is crossing the street, we see that she's wearing very high-waisted jeans, which, we, as we all know, are back. And we have a very long, long shot of her walking from one house to the other and crossing the street, having no idea what she's getting into. But of course... We do. Building a lot of dread, it takes a long time to get her into that room upstairs with the light on. She arrives in that room, and Michael Myers has placed a jack-o'-lantern on the bedside table. The tombstone is against the headboard, and Annie is positioned in a vaguely Christ-like posture on the bed. Her hips modestly turned, legs together. Lori begins to flip out. She uh, backs into something that triggers Bob hanging upside down and swinging. I guess that's where the rope came in, guys. Yay! Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) We have to surmise Michael's character from his actions because he never says anything. The fact that he would take the time to create this tableau on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, it's kind of a creepy thing. Let's put it in a horror movie because it's a horror movie. It's supposed to be scary. But on the other hand, it's like, you know, you look at this and it's like it's really carefully placed. It's very, very well thought out. And yeah, you have to wonder, did he do it just for himself? And if he did it just for himself, why doesn't Lori find him standing there staring at it? 
you know, if he did it for anybody else, is the idea that he wants other people to know what's going on in his mind, or was it just a compunction? He's just like, yeah, it's just something I gotta do. You know, <laughs> it's like right. You're asking I, the question: communication or compunction? He had some iteration of this in his mind, and there's no doubt that he was going to come to Haddonfield and kill people, and that those murders were going to be intricately connected to his murder of his sister, certainly as Loomis suggests, this is the playing out of some kind of fantasy that has been in his head uh, for the last 15 years. Yeah, and and timing-wise, keep in mind that he did that in broad daylight. So he he just went straight to the cemetery and lugged, he's been lugging that giant piece of rock around in that station wagon all day. (laughs) Well, one of the coolest things about this movie or the psychology of the killer is that the story very much states that he has stared at walls for decades and figured out exactly each move he's going to make. It still packs kind of a punch that like this guy has been, had this mind, this night in mind for so long and now he's just realizing it. He's uh, making a list and he's checking it twice. I will never forget watching this movie. I believe it was on Halloween. And I was a teenager and I got super high with my stepsister and we were watching it on the couch in our living room. We had a den in the back of the house and we we put up Christmas lights in there that were sort of hung up with like scotch tape holding them up around various things. And when it got to the scene where uh, Lori opens the door and you get the tableau of, you know, Annie in the bed and the gravestone, the tape holding the Christmas lights gave out. And so I heard the lights sort of fall and like, and they knock something over and I have never been so frozen still in a spot in just abject terror. <laughs> that like yeah. I, I could not get up to look and see what was wrong. I just stayed there frozen and waited for death to come for me. <laughs> what really got me was I mean, the, the sequence when uh, she runs across the street and she's trying to get in the, in the door and turns around and here comes Michael Myers crossing the street. That entire sequence, though, I mean, those shots of just the shape coming out of the house, coming across the street to get her, I mean, all that shit scared the fucking pickles out of my young body. It was incredible how scary this shit is. I'm a nerd for movie criticism, and that sounds weird if you're a fan of horror movies because we tend to get shit on. But if you take the time, uh, I adore Anthony Lane, who's the one of the film critics for The New Yorker, and I have his book. It's called Nobody's Perfect. Uh, and in it, he writes a review of Halloween H2O. It's like four pages long. It's longer than any of the reviews he writes for any of the other movies. And he talks very specifically... In this scene, after she finds the body, um, uh, he talks about one one shot in particular. And if it's all right, I'm just going to read a quick paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this is going to be great for our 2022 podcast about Halloween H2O. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but that's the thing. So he, he opens it up by talking about his relationship with Halloween and Michael Myers and having seen it for the first time. So, John, you've referenced a bunch of times, like, I wonder what it was like to watch this movie in the movie theater with an audience. And he makes it he makes a point here that I think you'll appreciate. So this is him watching it in 1978 in the movie theater. And he says, best of all, there was Laurie's infamous slump and slide against a wall. The wall takes up half the screen. The other half is shadow. And we know that Michael will jump out of it. 
but he doesn't jump. He fades into view. The white face slowly glimmers out of the dark like a memory that you have struggled to recover or like a ghost who is bashful of his own remorseless power to scare. The sound in the movie theater at that moment was like nothing I had heard before. A rising siren moan, not unmixed with pleasure. Carpenter had taken an old and cloudy conceit, the maniac on the loose, and distilled it to something pure and clean. Tarkovsky would have wept. You only said references to Tarkovsky in The New Yorker. But that was literally, that was why I told you guys that I, I watched the last 20 minutes of the movie. is because I wanted to see that scene and I wanted to see that moment. Because I, everybody remembers him sitting up in the back later on in the, you know, back in, in Tommy's house. But that scene, after she's found the bodies and she's against the floor, and you just see that mask come into view. I, John, like you said, I, to be in a movie theater and to hear a whole audience moan in terror as it happened must have been just an incredibly powerful experience. Yeah, that's another one where they were just fucking with exposure to, uh, like, he was there and they're like, uh, well, you know, if we adjust the exposure adequately, he will suddenly appear. Like he says, if it's a Friday the 13th movie, if it's even a Nightmare on Elm Street, he jumps. It's a jump scare. But Carpenter doesn't do that. He holds off. He lets it. He lets it be its own kind of quiet, building terror. I really think those are the moments that make this uh, uh, really unique. And for anybody, honest to goodness, if you are a fan of the Halloween movies, go read this little. This again, this little four-page essay. It is. Uh, it is worth looking up. So yeah, I mean, I think that my read on this whole you know topic in relation to. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday is, again, like, who or what movie do you not want to be in? Like, you know, I think that's a valid judging scale. And I would say that I don't, like, if I had to pick, I would not want to be in a Halloween movie. I would not want to be a victim in a Halloween movie. And I think there's some weight to that because there's just a darker, nastier, evil to this than even, you know, than, than Freddie or Jason for whatever reason. I mean, you could say, well, Freddie, you know, after the first movie, it's kind of more of a joke and, oh, well, I don't want to be turned into a cockroach or whatever. It's kind of ridiculous. Or, you know, again, as we've said with Jason, it's, it's more, he's a hooded executioner, but I think there's really something more disturbing and haunting about these films. So that's, it all adds up to a weight that, you know, I don't think all of the films clearly uh, convey, but like there, Michael Myers can, has this weird combination of supernatural and non-supernatural that kind of has the best of both worlds. On the first episode, we were talking about how Michael Myers is a perfect synthesis of the creepy stranger danger kind of character and a supernatural boogeyman, an urban legend. He's both a escaped maniac and a supernatural evil. My thesis is that from a filmmaking standpoint, after this movie, uh, the Friday the 13th films are just more dynamic entertainment than the Halloween series. And that's why I, I like them better. But, you know, like in terms of antagonist, yes, Michael Myers is better than Jason. So we'll see. We'll see how that plays out as we watch it again. 
this first film is such it's like it was found in a tomb it's it's such a crazy perfect thing uh even with its imperfections even with the things that we're kind of winking at and kind of smirking at a little bit and being like well that doesn't really play or you know that's kind of clunky dialogue even with those things it's still such a when man when this movie lands it's like a fucking lightning bolt it's crazy how elemental it is so um here we are in this room, uh, the tableaus and Jamie Lee Curtis is discovering, uh, the, the, the horror of Annie laid out on this bed beneath the tombstone and she backs into something and Bob is, uh, hanging. And then suddenly we have, um, a cupboard pops open and there's Linda and her eyes are crossed too. And uh, then Michael emerges from the negative space and uh, attempts to stab Lori uh, when she has no idea what is behind her. And, uh, well, he catches her arm. That's kind of annoying on some level. Um, eh. Eh, not that big of a deal. Michael definitely wanted someone to find this tableau. So the question is, really, was it for Lori specifically... Was it for someone else? Did he arrange the scenario so that she would come over? I I don't know about that. I don't have any hmm. clear evidence to point me in that direction. I never considered that possibility, but uh, you, you never know because he does take a, a significant interest in her for quite some time. So perhaps it is the, hey, I want to kill all these other people. I want you to look at it. And uh, and then I'll kill you. Well, that even though he's such a quiet and voyeuristic kind of guy, on some level he still wants to connect with somebody. Look, I did this. This is what's going on in my head, and now I have to murder you too. But I want at least somebody to see. It, it reminds me of uh, Francis Dollarhide in Red Dragon. Yeah. Well, yes. do, you, do you see? Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I would make the case that while clearly he has some kind of He's taken some kind of interest in Lori, largely, I think, because of just the scene where she drops the key off or whatever else. He, I think he wants someone to see. I don't know sure. if, it's, if it's Loomis, if it's whoever, but yeah, I think it's clear that he's done this up and he's not just done it for himself. He's spent 15 years with Loomis in one capacity or another, and none of what goes on in, in the course of this evening seems directed at Loomis or to reference him yeah. or to have anything at all to do with this guy. <laughs> That's absolutely well, true. Like none, yeah, of, there, none of this stuff seems like, oh, well, what I really care about is my chess game with Loomis. Right, yeah, yeah. It's, this isn't like uh, some late 90s serial killer thriller. On some level, it has to be crushing to Loomis's ego to know <laughs> that he's put f- 15 years into uh, that, that's why he's running around and gets so wound up he, he's like a jilted uh not lover but it's just like you know he, he's so focused on michael myers and michael myers could not care one fucking shit about this guy it's like he goes on this yes. murderous ramp yeah 15 years he spends in a room with this dude goes on a murderous rampage does, doesn't even pay attention to him at all the like yeah, and you would time... think like how insulting is that because yeah like, michael myers on some level must know that no one else really knows what he is. And yeah. the guy, the one guy who really does see it 
And he's like, yeah. no, nah, you're not my nemesis. Fuck you. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like the, the, the one and only time that he pays any attention to Loomis at all is at the very end when he goes, Michael! And Michael looks at him. Yeah. He responds to his name. Michael yeah. could, could care less about Loomis. Yeah, yeah. He's thinks about him all day, and he's always going on his rants about how cool and awesome and evil Michael is. And wherever Michael goes, Loomis is going to follow him, and Michael just couldn't give a shit about this guy at yeah, all. Yeah, like when you talk like, about mental rent or something, like yeah, yeah. Michael, Michael Myers <laughs> is always in yeah. Loomis's mind, <laughs> and it's not vice versa. <laughs> Michael Myers has four hotels on Boardwalk, and <laughs> Lewis is monopoly bored of his mind. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, we we do get in this sequence that Michael Myers has put a rake behind the kitchen door, so it will be harder for Laurie to get back out. Uh, that's a signal of uh, planning ahead. And yeah, it does yes. kind of validate some of the other conjectures that we had previously about how Michael might uh, approach doors and, you know, controlling the environment of his victims. Because here's like mm-hmm. clear evidence he, he did something so that she couldn't get out. It might also indicate the fact that he did want her to come over, that, that he was laying a trap. He, he did want her to come over and take a look at what was going on before he killed her. Mm-hmm. So the neighbors are ignoring Lori uh, screaming. Very Kitty Genovese vibe going on here. Yeah. In this quiet and peaceful Illinois neighborhood. So, so she doesn't have her keys uh, for whatever reason. I don't, I don't think they ever established why she would have lost her keys. She's trying to get back into Tommy's house. Maybe she lost them in her fall. So Michael is walking very slowly across the street towards her. It's uh, awesome. It's very Jason-like. There's no hurry. Barely escaping, Lori races back to the Doyle house, and she's counting on Tommy, who's dead asleep, opening the door while Michael slowly crosses the street in pursuit. And... Like, I do get frustrated with Lori in that scene, bit. to be honest. I, yeah, I would like too. her to go around the back, throw a rock through something, do anything besides just bang on the same fucking door. It's right. Like, I yeah. mean, she's not in the Arctic or the outback here. No, no, she yeah. picks up the pot and throws it against the window to wake him up. I, I actually think that's one of her more ingenious uh, uh, heroine scenes. Yeah. Well, that's fair, but I mean, I was just, just thinking, Man. watching it, that maybe going down the street a bit is better than betting your life on the kid you're babysitting coming down to let you in. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, like, I, I, I kind of <laughs> sell myself on it that she's out of her mind with fear, that she's not in a strategic mental space. You know what would be fun, and, and this is like a larger undertaking, but like, what if we watched films like this and actually had a scorecard graded the final girl or the final guy or whatever on how they, how they handle the situation? And mm. I would say that Laurie has few good scores in, in this yeah. factory. Yeah. She has very yeah. few well, clever moves. No, I could once again I could not disagree more, John. God damn it. Well that's why yeah. you're on the show, man. That's why you're on the show. <laughs> Look, she makes she she makes some mistakes in terms of dropping the knife and some of the other sort of horror movie tropes, but Twice, uh, I mean, stuff like twice uh, stuff like again grabbing a hold of the knitting needle as an improvised weapon, 
using a, a coat hanger to lock up the door in the closet. Oh no, that's yeah. definitely uh, she gets a that's a bullseye. She absolutely has an unerring hit on that one. But like, if you grade every final girl on merit, like I think she'd be middle of the pack at best. Well, is she the first true final girl? Well, I mean, Black Christmas, there is a final girl. Not that you expect her to be the final girl, but there is a final girl. In terms of a a climactic pursuit. And of course, um, Texas Chainsaw. Um, Uh, Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that Lori benefits from Michael's incompetence here. I mean, I think she makes I, I, a lot of dumb mistakes. Yeah, it's not so much incompetence. I, I think that he's very slow. He likes to take his time even when it disadvantages himself. And there's a little bit of a blundering aspect. He's so clever in so many other ways throughout the movie that you almost forget that he's been sitting in a room for 15 years. He's not Mr. Slick. But when we get to this climax, increasingly the movie is making choices just for horror movie scares, whether they 100% make sense or not. You know, when she stabs him with a knitting needle and he collapses, and her response is to just recline until this guy gets back up. Let me come back to the commentary on this one, because (laughs) obviously Jamie Lee Curtis um, has heard from a few fans over the years about Mm -hmm. this film. And she was sort of uh, venting on John Carpenter about the shit that she's taken. She basically was confronting him with the fact that twice she throws down the knife. And after the knitting needle and all of that, and John Carpenter said, probably a writing flaw. Lori <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. also um, drops the knife the second time, and John Carpenter said on the commentary, well, we never said that Lori Strode was the smartest girl. And Jamie Lippert <laughs> said, uh-huh, you did say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> The first time I ever saw this movie, I didn't give one shit about this kind of stuff. I, I just felt that it was scary. I was a little kid. I was being scared. I do find it amusing that you can do a lot of terrible things to Michael Myers, and he will inevitably survive. But small, thin pieces of metal are like this dude's kryptonite. <laughs> whether whether it's like a knitting needle or a uh, untwisted coat hanger, that is what will knock him out for several minutes at a time. He becomes conveniently less deadly when when the movie needs him to be. Uh, when, so suddenly he can't land a knife blow on an unsuspecting girl. He gets knocked unconscious twice by a small, thin piece of metal. I, I get it. But uh, even her idea of when she thinks that he's dead, or at least incapacitated, and she gets the kids out and, and she's like, hey, run next door. For one thing, she already tried to run next door for help and nothing happened. She She got no help. But she's sending the kids on the exact same errands that didn't work out for her in the first place. But then, instead of going along with them, she stays. She stays in the same house with the guy. So, on the one hand, it's an amazing horror movie moment when Michael Myers sits up 
and he's still alive and he's in the background and she's unsuspecting. On the other hand, you're just like, oh my God, this is a Darwin Award, man. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think her babysitter points are are very strong. (laughs) Go with the kids at least. Run out of the house. (laughs) Remember that she has injured herself when she fell down the stairs. Yep, right. So she's limping horrifically as she runs to the neighbor's house. And I wonder, I mean, I certainly intuited that, number one, she wasn't going to be able to just run away because she probably can't just just keep limping forever. Uh, and I think she's in a lot of pain. And that was actually what I thought when she sends the kids away is like, I kind of can't walk. You have to go get help. In terms of like a final climax, uh, we get we get Loomis in the house. And uh, I love when the mask does come off of Michael. Uh, it, it is, you know, we, we spend this entire movie building him up as this supernatural force and for one very, very brief moment struggle. And it's always amused me to realize that the guy underneath that mask, he looks like the, the, the oldest son of the dude who owns the local pizza parlor. You know, it, it looks like a really, really just normal guy. I don't know. Uh, I, I keep like thinking about that shot where we see him and his eye, one of his eyes seems distorted. Which is very like Jason. I think it's the fact that he has curly hair mm-hmm. that 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 grounds him in this very just normal guy kind of way. If he had like bald head or like stringy hair or something like that, but it's like you know he's curly haired guy. But it's weird. Yeah. It's like it's not like oh he's disfigured, but like it doesn't read as oh he's totally um, you know he's normal. Like it's a very interesting image that. Um, in the commentary, um, Carpenter said that people thought he was way more fucked up than he was because they actually didn't put any appliances on him or... Yeah, he's uh, a monster like Jason Voorhees. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. But yet somehow the shots that are in the movie, like he's got this weird eyelid thing going on and you kind of think he's, there's something wrong. The the shots are mostly in shadow, and uh, the imagination fills in those blanks. It is interesting that way earlier in the movie, Loomis describes him as being, he has a pale face and blank eyes, and he's basically describing the mask that Michael wears throughout the entire movie, instead of the human kid. He's not like, well, he's 21 years old, he's mm-hmm. about 5'10", he's got curly black hair, you know, he doesn't say any of those things. He describes the mask that, that Michael puts on when he's in murder mode. But I, I like the fact that he responds when Loomis says his name. He has just enough humanity to know what his name is and to turn his head when, when it's cold. It's cool and also creepy in a way that he gets shot and stumbles back into the room. Loomis goes up there and he's just standing there. And only when the bullets impact him does he start to pinwheel and actually react to them. And, of course, we get that classic moment when you, know, you look back out there, you know, was he the boogeyman? Da, 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 da. And it's not only his body is gone, but then we get his breathing over the soundtrack uh, along with the main theme song. The idea being that he's out there. He's in the world. He's, he's become more than just the shape. He's everywhere. He's a nightmare that can't be escaped. In terms of horror filmmaking, you know, it's hard to name anything better. The, the, the moment when he takes his mask off, I've always had the, the very different reaction in that he doesn't seem horrific or disturbed in any way. And I, what it reminds me of is a scene in an otherwise 
terrible movie, the Joel Schumacher 8mm film, when there's this guy who kills people for snuff films, basically. I don't think it's terrible. I think at worst that movie is mediocre, but it's not terrible. Well, I I won't split hairs with you there. But the point is that there's the moment late in the film when uh, the the machine is the guy in sort of this leather mask who kills people for the snuff Mm. film. Nicolas Cage unmasks him. And there's just this kind of schlubby guy underneath. Yeah. Nicholas Cage stares at him and the guy says, what did you expect? A monster? The thing is when that mask comes off, we expect a monster, but it's just a guy. There's almost something sort of profound about that. And I love the fact that that is the moment, like as he's strangling the life out of Lori, she gets the mask off and he has to let her go because he has to get the mask back on. Right. It's way more important that the mask is on than exactly. anything else. In a way, that moment is an almost perfect bookend to the opening scene in which we see through the eyes of uh, Killer's mask this horrible uh, homicide. And then at the end of the scene, the mask comes off and we're horrified because it's like it's just a kid. Exactly. And then we watch this entire movie and, and this guy is built up. Oh, he's a supernatural force. Or no, he's pure evil. There's no soul. We watch us uh, and do all this crazy and horrible things. And then the mask comes off and it's just a guy. He could be delivering pizza. It's not Jason Voorhees. It's not fucking Freddy Krueger. Final thoughts. Final thoughts. Final thoughts. <laughs> Final. <laughs> so, right. Do you like it? Do you we think got it's a good movie? When you get to the end and the body disappears, this movie takes this weird right turn into the supernatural in its closing moments that is comparable to the first Friday the 13th when Jason jumps out of the lake, but is different and better and deeper because of everything that we have breathed into him. That mask is this empty vessel that we can pour all of our terrors into. And because of the way the movie is situated in this kind of idyllic suburbia, the the terrors that we pour into it are our own. I mean, this is not in, you know, the, the Overlook Hotel. This isn't in a cabin in the woods, like a cabin in the woods or a evil dead. This happens in a house that looks like mine. And I think that if, if I had watched, any of those other movies and then gone out into my garage. Yes, I might have been a little unsettled about whether or not there were going to be two creepy twins out there or something, but I'm not sure I would have come in and locked all my doors. This movie hits home uh, because it allows us to project things onto it and it ends in such a way that everything you've projected into it is still here. It's still around you. It's still going on. There is no escape from Michael Myers, the metaphor. Uh, whatever it is that that means to you. And that scares the shit out of me to this day. Like I said in the last podcast, this is one of two horror movies that I still have nightmares about. That's pretty fucked up. Like that's pretty, the, you, you, you've touched on something very primal and, and very timeless if you've made a movie that has that effect. And I think we've spent a lot of time talking about what it is about this movie that, that does it. But I think in a lot of ways that is going to be for all the filmmaking tropes and the, the specifics of the, the filmmaking and the scripting and the performances uh, that go into it, you know, I don't, I just don't know if there is, if there is an exact answer. It's, it's a lightning strike of a movie. It's one of the all time best horror movies ever made. It's, there's a, there's a reason why I watch this movie a minimum of once a year and I never get sick of it. 
you know, I, I'm never flipping through it like, yeah, 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 here's this scene there. So uh, there are things in the writing or production that we can kind of go, yeah, it's a little, you know, this, that, everything else. But I, I think that actually lends it charm. The fact that this was a lower budgeted film that was just kind of pulled together by the strong hands of these incredibly talented people. There's such an amazing amount of brilliance that it's like 90 minutes of lightning captured in the bottle. So anyway, Halloween is a pretty good movie. If you were to say, Mike, I, I've heard of these things called slasher movies. Where should I start? You always start with Halloween. So this movie really kind of sets the tone for so many knockoffs and imitators and advancements of the genre. But this movie is raw and human and naturalistic. Overall, like the spirit of this film, I think is valuable. So it's, it's a movie that manages to combine the darkness and the sadism and the horror of the monster in the closet with like the authenticity of the characters who are dealing with it in a way that most of these films don't. So it's it it's earned its right to be the greatest and the most influential slasher film of all time. Alright, well thanks a lot guys. Always a pleasure. Adios muchachos and uh, next time we'll watch Halloween 2. Alright, looking forward to it. Take it easy.